1: Welcome to this Wednesday, November 29th, 2017 edition of the Hagman Report. Joe Hagman here, along with Doug Hagman. We come to you live each weekday, 7 to 10 p.m. for the Hagman Report. And don't forget the two extra shows, the Hagman Daily Show, 2 to 3 p.m., as well as the Doug Hagman Show, 9 to 10 a.m. each and every day. And you can go to Hagman Report, our website, HagmanReport.com, for both shows, as well as all of our uh, Hagman report show information and the important news stories of the day. We got a, a great it's, show lined up today. Doug Hagman Radio Show. Oh, I'm sorry, D H R S. Right, D
2: H R S. That's what it is. I, I gotta be picky because it's all under the file D H R S.
1: Okay, I want to want to thank you guys for filling in for me while I've been absent. Faker. I've had Faker. a rough cold. I don't even know if it's a cold as much as it was a a, a light flu with no stomach, no real stomach issues. At least I wasn't, uh, sick to my stomach, but. Didn't get your flu shot, did you? <laughs> 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 That's an inside joke we're not going to go into right now. But, um, no, it's, uh, it's great to, great to be back. Still feeling a little weak, but we are ready to go. We got a fantastic show lined up for you tonight. We're going to be talking about news. In this first half hour, then we're going to be joined by Andrew Thorpe King from 7.30 to 9, followed by Pastor David Langford going from 9 interview. to 10. And I'm really looking forward to this interview with, with Andrew King. He's, he's a cigar a lover. So yeah. we have to mention that. I watched uh, a little bit of the interview he did on Caravan to Midnight, but he's going to come on to talk about his book, Blaze, Operation Persian Trinity, and we're going to get into um, a whole bunch of stuff from ISIS to Iran, what's happening in Saudi Arabia. A big picture of the Middle East, uh, politically, economically, and on the verge of war. We've had uh, a lot of news happen in the last 24 hours. North Korea launched a missile yesterday, which, interestingly enough, is not dominating the headlines, even though it was an intercontinental ballistic missile.
2: No, Matt Lauer is dominating Garrison Killer <laughs> and Matt Lauer. Yeah. Heck with the missile. I don't know who Garrison Keeler is. I had a discussion with John. He filled me in. know who
1: Garrison Keeler is. Maybe by voice, not by face or name. No, you know the voice for sure. But yeah, um, you know, the the big story today, uh, and there's a few in the sexual harassment, misconduct, and assault category. You have multiple women accusing Matt Lauer of everything from inappropriate sexual harassment to actual. Assault. And there are, I mean, if you just go to the top of Drudge on the left hand side, there's about 10 different stories documenting, you know, what it was with Matt Lauer, what he did, when he, when did he do it, who he did it to, and who's going to replace him. Takes on the, the whole question, menu, right? Where in the world's Matt Lauer? You know, it's under, under, under the, under the, the, <laughs> the the female production desk. One thing that's interesting about this though, is the, there's two, Two pieces of the story that I find interesting. One, he had a button in his desk. Is is what you just referenced, the, the lock door button. No, but I got one of those too. I make a door on your office. I make a lot of people nervous. But apparently, he could lock the door. He'd call you into his office, and you get, you know, you're standing here. He could lock the door from under his desk. Apparently, there was a button, and that's when some of these harassments and assaults happened, as well as the Olympics. But one thing I find interesting. Is he was portrayed himself on the Today Show as this, you know, kind, gentle, understanding man who was, you know, so nice and respectful. And when you read some of the stories about his behavior outside of or inside the workplace and all outside of being on air, uh, it's really I, I should say surprising. I guess it's not so surprising. It's it's alarming to see to transform into something else while on air and to be a completely different monster off air. I, I mean, we should be used to it in this, uh, you know, Hollywood era we live in as the news presenters and actors are basically interchangeable. Hmm. But this guy made $25 million a year. $25 million. For doing what? For reading from a teleprompter. Yeah. Basically.
2: That's, that's crazy. That's a, and for harassing uh, female workers.
1: Mm-hmm. Huh. But yeah, um, you know, what's this uh and we have, you know, other um uh, allegations coming out against other people in the media from the head of NPR to Congressman. One of the interesting stories about the the well, head of NPR you you're not talking about Keeler, are you? Let's see. There was two people, two top execs from NPR in the last three weeks that have been Cut. Gee, NPR. You, you
2: mean the same radio station I worked with, Rolling Stone, on, on and did a you know hatchet job on me, of course. Uh, l- let me shed a tear, okay? Um, yeah. What's that? <laughs> broke him down, right? <laughs> it, it, you know, and
1: that's that's a good thing. Uh, I, look. You know, <laughs> another top NPR exec, NPR hour over good. good sexual harassment allegations. One chief news editor, David Sweeney, was out after three female journalists leveled complaints against him. Yeah, and earlier this month, senior vice president of news and editorial director Michael Oscaris was forced to resign amid allegations of sexual misconduct. So, I mean, you have, you know, Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, the, the people from NPR, and there's so many other ones that aren't making, you know, the top headlines, top tier headlines that are, um, you know, being named and, and accused. And it, it stems to the, from Hollywood to the top tiers of media to Congress and Washington. There's an interesting story. I know that the, uh, representative Clyburn, Jim Clyburn made some off, <laughs> made some pretty interesting remarks when asked about a colleague, Representative John Connors, who's been accused of a number of women of sexual harassment, and settlements have been made to where we saw, what was it the $15 million slush fund that <clears throat> was used to settle Congress's 17, sexual harassment? 17285000 or okay.
2: $254,085, I believe it was. I got it right here. It's it's seventeen million. Seventeen point two five million is what the uh, payouts were. Two hundred and sixty eight complaints over twenty years, nineteen ninety seven to two twenty seventeen.
1: Well, interestingly enough, the um there was a congressional black caucus press conference today, and South Carolina's representative, Jim Clyburn, made a number of interesting statements about his colleague um Coming under hot water. One, he says that Congress, sexual harassment standards should be different for member of Cong- members of Congress. Yeah, they should be higher, right? Oh, absolutely. That's what he says. And then it's interesting. He, cause he says, uh, it's different because he's elected and he's referring to other people in the media and whatnot who have resigned or been fired after allegations have come out. He says, you know, who elected those people? We, we are elected. And then. He went on to compare Connors' accusers to the child murderer, Susan Smith, who initially claimed a black man had abducted her kids. Clyburn said, these are all white women who've made these charges against Connors. And apparently that is not sitting well with many people. Yeah, that that probably went over like a lead balloon there. And they say this is not the first time in the last few weeks where he has made remarks that were... um Put him in a bad light. Well,
2: well, look, I, I, I believe
1: in the pres- presumption of innocence.
2: Absolutely. Okay. For except, uh, there are times when, when you've got, well, I, I just believe in the presumption of innocence. However, there is such a thing as uh, the continuing course of criminal conduct based on previous performance. When you, when you have Conyers, for example, who has settled a claim which would and as it's my understanding, an admission of misconduct with a uh, a dollar payout that is a whole different area than if, than somebody just saying or when you have video evidence or photographic evidence that has been authenticated properly, then that's a whole different level than just mere accusations in my view.
1: Well, we see the sexual harassment allegations are causing a rift among Democrats both in the media and in Congress. Today you had Representative Kathleen Rice abruptly leave a Democratic caucus meeting saying that Democrats were not being serious about sexual harassment allegations about against Representative John Connors. That's just one of many headlines detailing the division. You've seen some Hollywood actresses uh, come out and defend accused rapists like Leah Dunham and she has been taken to task. But you see two sides here. You see the people who are defending people, um, and it seems like the left, there are many people on the left who are going, uh, you know, they're taking sides instead of, as you said, you know, the due process of finding the facts, finding out what's true, seeing what's able to be proved or not, how many allegations are there, is there a history of this, is this a one-time thing. It seems like people are just taking sides based on like a popularity contest. Or the likability of a person.
2: You know, uh, just from what I know, just from the interviews I've given to the corporate media, by the way, I'm never going to give another interview to the mass media ever again. But, but, but just, just from what I know, the way they twist things, the way they misrepresent things, the way they, um, and, and I'm not going to go into detail. And it's amazing how many, uh, well, it just amazes me. It really, it's, it's, it saddens me actually. How they could take, how the, the, corporate mass media can take a twist and, and, uh, misrepresent with impunity. That's what they do, best. I, I just, I, it, seriously, I, I just don't, I don't quite understand it. And in the, in the license that they have to do that. The, um, so having said that, you know, you've got, to me, anything that comes out of, yeah, I'll tell you right now, knowing what I know, if, if you're in part of the corporate mass media, meaning CBS, NBC, uh, ABC, and, and you're telling me it's it's snowing outside. I better I'm going to go out and check. Um, I'm not going to believe you, mm-hmm. or if you if you're telling me, you know, I don't care what it is, because you can't believe these people, and especially in matters of politics, <laughs> and especially <laughs> right. on, on, on on these issues.
1: And look at, I mean, um, one of the things that that I talked about on the Daily Show the last two days is the what we're seeing with the Trump's war on the media, that they've made a big issue about this. And then the media has really, you know, turned up uh the the hate machine on Trump from the White House decorations to his comment on Elizabeth Warren in front of the uh, okay. Native L- Code. L- let me ask you a question. R- okay, sorry.
2: But do you believe that now uh, – do you believe that they're, they're gonna go, they aside from going after Donald Trump about the, about the decorations, do you believe that there is a movement by Mueller and by the deep state to remove Trump from office?
1: Oh, yeah. Do right. I believe that they're, that's what they're working on? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Do you, absolutely. do you believe that the General Flynn, um, what's the, what's taking place with General Flynn is, making that more imminent
1: than not that's what they're trying to do but i don't believe that um i i've and i've read about what what general Flynn is accused of and and i don't believe that any of that can be tied to trump it seems that those things were separate completely separate from the campaign and from donald trump and had nothing to do with him from uh turkey uh, right and and for what i'm referencing if folks don't know Michael Flynn was apparently offered money to to extract the Turkish man who was accused of a coup against Erdogan, who lives Fatal in Gulen. Pennsylvania. Yeah, Paul Williams has been on
2: uh, a good friend of the program. Paul Williams has been on talking about Fethullah Gulen, who lives a couple hundred miles from the studio, actually, and uh, you know, yeah, but 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 I got to tell you, Gulen is. um his mind is mush. I, I know this from people who have. Uh, Let me just say, I know this. Okay, the guy, the guy's mind is mush. He's got Alzheimer's. He's got dementia, and uh, everything you see
1: attached to Gulen is CIA. But so, do you think that you the Erdogan is is correct? And was the guy coherent? And and is he? Do you think he's guilty of, of attempting a coup on a or is he a fall guy? As no, a, I, I think, blame? I, I
2: think maybe 20 years ago he might have been, or 15 years ago, but uh, even though it's obvious, trust me, don't send me right. emails and saying okay, but, no, what I'm saying is he would have had that capability back a decade ago, perhaps, not today, and I think, I think it's, it's perhaps intelligence agency orchestrated he's just merely the placeholder um you know Weekend the Bernie's although he's still sucking air uh put him down and and then the CIA or the uh intelligence agencies work in the background so I mean, do I think he's capable No, but I think those who prop him up to are capable
1: well, what do you think with uh Flynn? do you think he's in a position
2: to i, I think hurt he's confused yeah here's look look here's what here's what i'm saying and and uh, I talked about this in my morning show. Here's what I'm saying. I'm seeing Michael Flynn Jr. being squeezed. There's a lot of payback, a lot, a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, excuse the expression, but a lot of can of whoop asses being opened against Michael Flynn. And, 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 hey, you know what? Register your complaints about my language. Feel free to do so. Um, but, but here's the problem. Uh, I see Michael Flynn being squeezed because his son is being squeezed, mm-hmm. and I think that that his son is—I mean—to watch this would be horrible. Weissman, if you if you look at the uh, the 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 uh, history of Weissman, that guy is, in my view, has got no scruples, he has got no moral boundaries. He will—he'll throw you in solitary, let you sit there until you confessed to what, you know, mm-hmm. the Kennedy assassination, all right? That's basically Weissman, and that's the tactics being used against Flynn. So Flynn Sr., and understand, that that can of whooping butt comes from the, remember the remarks by Flynn, the Flynn family, against uh, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, and remember Jared not in this context, but Jared saying, you know, there's going to be a lot of payback once we get reelected, of course, that was... Pre Flynn stuff, but but the attitude is still there. So, I, look, I think I think by the end of the day, F- uh, Weissman and Mueller will have Flynn over barrel and saying, you know what, I w- I saw Trump, uh, you know, being beamed to the moon and uh, having sex with uh, you know moon alien uh, um, robots. I, I, that's kind. Of, I mean, how ridiculous that whole thing is. But but I see that as being perhaps the. Um. I just, I just see that taking place. I,
1: I see Flynn. But well, what could they turn around and? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, personally, I believe that if you're going to go after Trump, you better have the goods. Otherwise, you're going to cause a lot of unrest in this country. Well, uh, yeah, and the other, the other part of this, though,
2: um. I'm interested because I, I I have a suspicion. Something happened in Saudi Arabia when subsequent to Donald Trump's visit there. And I think that, that that's related to who was I talking to today about this? Was it you, John? Yeah, John just nodded yeah. affirmatively. Um, uh, there's something happened in Saudi Arabia. I think that that, that, that was a multi purpose visit. And think about the CIA setting Saudi Arabia up, I mean, building them up and, and being really an operational kingdom or arm of the CIA, so I think there's, uh, I don't know what it is, but I think that the, the uh, Saudis are involved in maybe a um, uh, kind of a chess, in this case a chess game, I don't think other chess games are going on, but in this case maybe just chess game to, to kind of get back at the Deep state. That's my personal opinion. I don't know how they. I I don't know the the mechanics of it. But
1: okay, you know, I'd on. like to think the the Saudi Arabia roundup of uh, you know the top people in power there is more than just a consolidation of power by Mohammed bin uh, Solomon. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, we saw the reports of U.S. Was it Blackwater interrogating these? And I don't know that to be They're true. Americans, it was reported yeah. all over the, yeah. the news. But I personally don't believe for one second that this is some... What's going on in Saudi Arabia has anything to do with with Trump draining the swamp. Uh, okay. I wish I, I was wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But there are some people out there that are making connections to... The sealed indictments that. Oh
2: no no no, no no! I wouldn't go that
1: far. Marines at Langley. No no! I would. Come on. I mean, come there's on. a lot I'm of stuff keep, out there. Seriously? People keep sending us stuff. Uh, just to give you some examples, and <sighs> I understand that you know they want to, sh- people want to share the information and whatnot, but um, I don't. I, I don't. Uh, if the Marines were, if they you know took down surrounded and and went into the cia you'd hear about that on the news it's not going to be kept quiet okay yeah I, i'm not going to go into the
2: you but think yeah, that I some, that's where you're going no right? oh no 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 not even close no just ask my and, and i don't i don't believe for example that that there are two dozen three dozen indictments i i, I don't not even close you because anyone who believes that really has never been involved in the grand jury or the, 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 uh, the whole system of, of the, uh prosecutors, federal prosecutors. No,
1: right, I uh, do not just come first. It's not the first. No. And,
2: and you're not going to keep that level of secret. So uh, I do believe there are probably two, maybe three at most six, even that would be such a wild stretch that I, I would go back to two or three that are, that are still sealed that are related to the case. And, and, and of course at most, at most. So, um, the way I'm looking at it is, uh, Mueller is on a mission, and I and I do like and I mentioned this on my morning show. Sidney Powell, the former federal prosecutor, described uh, the um, uh, he, she was on uh, Sean Hannity, and she described the uh, Mueller. She the, the, you know how everyone says it's mission creep with Mueller. She says it's not mission creep. It's creeps on a mission, hmm. and and yeah, I thought I was, that was right. I thought that was a great. Uh, uh, just a fantastic statement because I see that taking
1: place. Because so, Robert yeah. Mueller was put ahead in, ahead in the FBI right after nine eleven, he didn't do anything to to help uh, the American public, even the victims' families understand what happened. He was part of the totally Uranium win. One deal. He's been a Hillary Clinton ally and friend and protector for forever. Yeah, he's not just gonna. He did nothing with Uranium One.
2: Him and Comey, Weissman, even at the time, they did nothing about Uranium One. The Lynch Department of they Justice. Helped. <laughs> they helped. Uh, well, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And you got to go back to 2000. You gotta, look, this goes back to 05 and 06 under Bush uh, in terms of some of this. It, it, but Uranium One, if you go back into 2010, uh, you've uh, you get the Holder Justice Department. You've got Comey as FBI Director, or uh, Mueller, and... Uh, and then Comey later. Um, Mueller's... Uh, but they all... They watched. They approved. Mm-hmm. I think Uranium-1 and the energy, the larger uh the energy. And I, and I played a six-minute clip. I, I don't like to play those long clips, but a six-minute clip, clip from uh, Clinton Cash and then a, a shorter clip from... Uh, John Solomon and Sarah Carter from the Uranium 1, the update uranium on the Uranium 1. And I think that, uh, that between those two clips that really kind of set the stage. And one more thing I did was I, there was a minute clip from John Solomon where he, uh, he said something and I think this is extremely important. It kind of gets, goes back to, uh, uh, our support for Sean Hannity as as the beacon of concern- or truth in the conservative media the what's the, the, the very thin layer. But um he said that every debunked essentially every debunked aspect of uranium one that is proclaimed debunked is is not debunked and that uh even Shepard Smith he named him by name uh saying he essentially lied or used false facts. And I thought, okay, that's there you go right there um, that's extremely important for people to understand and and this is the fracturing within that one network that people need to see but go ahead i
1: um. well, I really don't have nothing else to say on 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 this except <clears throat> we do see some of the claims of friends of ours and others about this and and um we continue to get emails about it. And I continue and let, to get questions. It, I'll, I'll, you know, and that's let, why let I brought this up. That. Yeah, and mean, it's fine.
2: Um, we, we look, we don't agree. And this is something. Do, do we need to put on our website? And yes, on, yes. We don't agree. A disclaimer. disclaimer. that that but we don't. Do not believe that we agree with 100% of everything our guests say. We don't. And just because we don't, we don't say, hey, we don't believe you about this. Uh, no we're not gonna we're not gonna disrupt the flow of the conversation right uh, and plus we have more class than that
1: and uh i mean yeah, right we just be i mean that's that's common with any show, whether it's on t v or nobody agrees with all the people they bring on and everything they say and if you do you're 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 nigaramus, but that's why we you know we allow the people to come on we allow them to uh State their case and, and and put it out there, and then just like you guys, we turn around and and if it's something we don't know or unsure of, we do the research and and look into it and go from there. But I mean, as much as I would like to see or wish that Robert Mueller and, and you know was working on on draining the swamp and going after the Clintons, I just I can't I can't wrap my mind around it. <laughs> Mueller, I can't believe it. Mueller is part I mean, of the swamp. You no, know, see these people. He's a lifeguard at the swamp. I understand that people need hope and want the, want hope, and, and, you know, I would be, love nothing more than to see Clinton be held accountable for her crimes and all the, the, what John would say, the swamp monsters who have been there for years to to be indicted, to have, uh, you know, Mueller go after them. That, that's just not the way it's going to happen right now. I don't see it, and if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to apologize and say I was wrong, but I just don't see it, and it's frustrating to me to see all, a lot of people buying into this and waiting and waiting for this to happen, and and, it's, and if it doesn't happen, then what? You know, where do we go from here? So, we have to understand the battle. We have to understand the players in the battle. Hey, did
2: you know that uh, Tony Podesta was arrested, and uh, yeah. Hillary Clinton's got an ankle bracelet on, and she's not going to leave the country? And the one story McCain does too.
1: Okay, that's the one story that, uh, and we talked about this off air. I don't think we had it on air. No, we didn't. We received some emails and some information of McCain wearing the boot on his other foot. Turned out to be true. And what was his excuse? He was giving his injured foot rest. But as John said, that's like taking a band-aid off your cut finger here and putting it on this finger. <sighs> just to give your cut finger a rest. That makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah. It makes yeah. no sense. So I don't know if we'll ever really understand or if that's just McCain's stupidity or insanity. We don't know, but something weird is going on with him, that's for sure. And how about this tax vote? As I said, could come down to Eight. an approval from McCain.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, ultimately, yeah. When yeah. we come back, Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the tip of my ears,
1: uh, edge of my chair on that. Andrew Thorpe King will be our guest. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after these short messages. edition of the Hagman Report. We are going to be joined by Andrew Thorpe King here in just a few moments. Wanna just bring a few quick headlines while we bring him on. It's not enough that the media and entertainment industry give to abortion. They want other Americans to do the same. How many people have heard of this hashtag on Twitter? Giving Tuesday. Well, 20 women in the media and Hollywood are donating to abortion for Giving Tuesday. The Tuesday following Thanksgiving...
2: Wait, wait, wait. How does that work? Do you get a gift certificate?
1: I'm going to what? go through
2: it here. Uh, here's for the third trimester, or, or even better yet, the
1: uh, eighth trimester abortion, right? You, think, no, you think about that, right? Giving Tuesday. The Tuesday following Thanksgiving encourages Americans to donate to charitable causes amidst shopping days like Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Women in the media, like Melissa Harris Perry... And in the entertainment world, Melissa like Harris Silverman. Perry. Melissa Harris perry is going to give a, a a gift card for the abortion.
2: Is, is that a bad thing to do? I, 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 look, I figure anyone who, who who does that is is fair game for like Melissa Harris perry And hey, look, I'm no I'm no orator, believe me, but I don't
1: talk like this.
2: All
1: right, so. Women in the media like Melissa Harris-Perry and in the entertainment world like Sarah Silverman Insisted that their Twitter followers make use of the day by supporting reproductive rights and abortion clinics To do so, they recommended donations to the Lady Parts Justice League Run by comedian Liz Winstead The money would go towards the Lady Parts Justice League Vaginal Mystery Tour the comedy Bonanza promises to join its audience with local activists and independent abortion providers, recruiting hundreds of local volunteers who are looking out for the clinics. The tour also aims to fight President Trump and educate those anti-abortion, I'm not going to say that word, who make a scene and make people feel shamed for being sexual beings. Okay. According to the, mm-hmm. the LPJL so website. Anyway, there's, there's a list so of 20 women... From comedians, actresses, and people in Hollywood, like the uh, editor of Death and Taxes magazine, or uh, you have writer for Time magazine, Jacqueline Friedman, writer for <sighs> Newsweek, and page six, Paula Froelich, and many others. Uh, Boy, a- I'm actresses, surprised. TV hosts. Uh, and uh, this is a thing on Twitter. This article is on Newsbusters dot org if you want to read it. But what a disgusting thing. I mean, yeah, what no. is with these people? As the first line of that article says, oh, it's not enough that the media and entertainment industry give to abortion, not the time, the money. They want the other Americans to do the same. And it's just disgusting that these people are what they're able to promote and what they're able to get away with. And then, you know, to turn it around and say the people who are anti abortion are, you know, against women and against reproductive health rights. The way that I mean, I I,
0: uh, played a piece yesterday
1: on the Daily Show, and I'm going to find this because I want everybody to listen to this. It is um, a piece that was done by the professor Brett Weinstein from. He was at the Evergreen. He's the Evergreen College biology professor who was run out of the Evergreen College because he refused to participate in a in a in a blacks only day. He he refused to leave. They, they asked all the white professors and white students. I remember that. It was that. a big deal on Fox News. It was yep. a big deal, um, yep. in the political correctness movement. There's a four minute video on real clear politics. And what he gets into is the social justice warrior movement and how over the last 20 to 30 years, how it has become so effective. And what he gets into is that the, even though the ideas, and the ideology is insane and it, and it makes no, makes no sense that the, the structure of the power behind it is very efficient and without getting into about it's a four, four and a half minute video where he, he lays this all out and it was on real clear politics. It's Mark Weinstein and I would urge everybody to listen to it. It's something called the, the genius of the, uh, political correct movement, I believe it is the title of it, but it, it it gave real insight as to what's going on and how over the last twenty years the uh, people who are who are on this in this movement, uh, you know, the political correct political correct social justice warriors have refined their message and made uh, put the argument in terms of undefinable words and in uh, ways that it can't be dis discredited or proven one way or the other, and the example I gave is climate change. Some Somebody will come up to you and say, you know, uh, man-made climate change is the reason for all the, the natural disasters on Earth. While there is, you know, uh, evidence of climate change, Standeo says that it starts with the sun, and it's not only the Earth that is heating up, it's the sun's, you know, the cause for all the, the warming and cooling periods, from the ice ages to the, the periods of, of maximum heat. Well, to to say that man-made climate change is the reason you know man- made climate change is the reason for all the um, the disasters in the world you know you can make an argument both ways but you start putting in indefinable terms or in terms that where the definition constantly changes and in ways that you can't prove or disprove it you know loaded statements that they've been able to refine their arguments over the last 20 to 30 years and that's what's so effective not the arguments they're actually making but running with what sticks. And, and how to basically tongue twist their way, uh, into the argument. I know I didn't explain that well. No,
2: I, I think you did.
1: And, and, but, but, you know, uh,
2: let me expand this a little bit. Think back to right after the inauguration. You remember the Women's March? Mm hmm. Okay. And remember the iconic pink hats? Well, What's the history behind those? And, and there's a specific name for that, where where that came from, and it's the uh, uh, Phrygian or Phrygian cap. Phrygian cap. I'll spell it. It's P H Y R G I A N, the Phrygian cap, um, and that the pink hats represent this revolution, and of course that's where this women's revolution came on. And the, remember that the uh, that women's march was to protest Donald Trump. Uh, the inauguration of donald trump but but the big thing behind this in, in addition to that is is this um the the uh using these these symbolic things that these useful idiots they have no clue what this means what the cap means or what mm-hmm. the history is and 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 they're uh conflating various rights with um uh, well where there are no rights but but Look, <laughs> this is ridiculous. The, the taking um, the taking of human lives through abortion. Cecile Richards, Planned Parenthood in my view. Uh, a war criminal, and again, this is my personal opinion of a war criminal. And uh, Hillary Clinton, the same thing. Margaret Sanger, eugenics. This is all about eugenics. This is all about population control. And this is all about an attack on our biblical uh, structure. I just wanted to add that.
1: We have our guest with us, and I'll post that, uh, Brett Weinstein, clip yeah, please to the that. website, please and that. I'll do that tonight before the show's over. We have with us our guest, Andrew Thorpe King. He is an author as well as a <laughs> serial entrepreneur. And he likes <laughs> cigars, which I, 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 I like to. I like a good cigar. Uh, if you That's watch it, I... the interview with J.B. Wells, he's got a, a cigar in hand during that interview. Uh, but that was a really good interview. We're going to bring on Mr. King. Welcome to the Hagman Report.
3: Hey, how you doing, Joe? How
1: you doing, Doug? Hey, good. And there and there it is.
2: What is that? a Cohiba, right?
3: This is actually a Partagas Black, one of my favorites. All right. Yes.
2: Okay, well.
3: Distributed by General Cigars, yep.
2: Okay, all right. So you're a cigar aficionado, huh?
3: Yep. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, fine tobacco, and uh, it's a great elixir. Uh, usually, when I'm writing or uh, contemplating things, this is uh, my companion. So,
2: I, I, uh, I understand. Well, yeah. m- mine's my mine's my dog, and once in a while, a cigar. If we there uh, you go. You know. So anyway, uh, well, it's, it's great to have you on the show, and you're the author of. Oh, hang on a second. Just Get so a people know too. this. Yep, yep, there yeah. it is, right here. Okay, and, and I got to tell you. A very interesting, very informative, very, uh, I mean, there's not a wasted word in this book. And of course I'm talking about Blaze. Uh, very Thanks, well sir. done. Very well done. Uh, Operation Persian Trinity. And, and I, uh, you know, I've, I'm just reading through this. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm not going to, well, you can just explain it your way through this. I'm not going to um, go through, go through it, but I thought it was just very well done.
1: So, Joe, I took it right out of your hand. Go ahead and. Uh, well Andrew let's do this let's start by how about you tell us in the audience uh, a little bit about yourself and then we'll go right from there
3: Okay so um yeah I guess uh I'm a I'm a I'm a banker by day I'm an entrepreneurial uh, I'm an entrepreneur you know throughout my life started out in the music industry uh working various jobs in the music industry while starting my own uh, independent record labels on the side uh, I own two independent record labels um, on the rights to over 120 recordings, about half as many merchandise rights. Um, from there, I kind of segued into a dual career into financial services. I had to, did financial planning for a while. Uh, ran online lending portfolios, both on and offshore. I uh, was in a lead generation space. Again, now I work for a bank where we uh interact and power a lot of Silicon Valley's fintech um, companies and kind of be in the bank behind that. Um and I've always kind of been uh, a conservatarian for the most part. Um, and again, through my music background and my interest in that, I've always been very aligned with the uh, independent DIY ethos of, of, of punk rock, uh, which seems like it wouldn't be aligned with conservatism or libertarianism. Uh, but for me, I think it really, it really is. So, um, that's kind of part of who I am and, and, and the composite of, of my life. Um, and uh, through all of that, um, you know, I guess it was probably back in 2007, I really kind of grew this affinity and had this voracious appetite for, um, reading spy novels, reading a lot of, uh, Daniel Silva, Ted Bell, Brad Thor, Vince Flynn, and Joel C. Rosenberg. They're kind of my top five, uh, influencers for my writing. Uh, and you know, I just found myself at night just, you know, just I, really escaping I, I, into these world. How
2: do you like Brad Thor? You, you like his writing? Uh, because I do. Brad, uh, I've, I've communicated a lot with Brad Thor uh, especially early on in, in okay. his, his writing and, and um, in fact I've got a couple of his galley copies of his first books so yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in there name dropping because sure. I can't you know
3: why not yeah so I actually I've never actually met Brad but he goes to school with his daughter since he moved to Nashville yeah okay a little, interesting little tidbit I never met him of course but Um, Nice guy. Big fan of his. His style writing is very interesting interesting to me, especially recently. I've noticed his chapters get shorter and shorter. (laughs) He's tighter, he's tighter and tighter with uh, the action and the pacing. It's very cinematic the way he plans it. A lot of that kind of concepting is kind of uh, played a part in the new novel I'm co-authoring with Joel Richardson. So I really kind of study a lot of Thor's style on that. I like how he slips in expository stuff where he's kind of teaching you, you know, the whole faction concept, which is you don't know where the facts end and the fictions begin. I, I try sure. to incorporate that into my writing, um, so I, I study him a lot, you know, uh, not just obviously for enjoyment, but for technique. I, I, uh,
2: I kind of picked up, maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of picked a little bit of that up in, in your book, um, the, the style, not the content, obviously, the style, sure. you know. And I, I, you talk about being tight in terms of. Um, the, your writing style, I, I think, I think that you did a marvelous job, by the way, in this book. And once again, folks, Blaze, uh, fantastic, fantastic book. And we're going to have links to, to purchase this book as well. So go ahead. No, no,
3: yeah. So yeah. no, and it's, and it's, and it's an evolution, right? So that, that was my first novel, went through a whole lot of uh, editing iterations. Uh, I had self published it and then it, uh, was released on, uh, World Net Deli's imprint, World Ahead Press. Um, so even that one was refined from there. Um, you know, so one of the things I think I learned with the book, and uh it's a great adventure story, it's a great spy novel, a lot of uh, geopolitical themes in there that can really kind of teach you both about history and also kind of tease your imagination on forecasting near term events, particularly uh, with you know prophetic tinges to it., uh, there's a big you know thread in the novel where uh, the main character and his pastor are constantly. Uh, investigating their curiosities into uh, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the war of Gog and Magog, so that's a consistent thread throughout. Um, and it doesn't really end on a kind of a definitive note with that, but it, it, it's teasing the idea and, and looking at the geopolitical players and seeing who might be aligned with that prophecy um, and unfolding in the world today. Um, so, you know, writing that book, um, one of the things I, I look back and I'm trying to do a little bit differently as I do this do this new book with uh, Joel Richardson, author of the Islamic Antichrist. Um, we're doing a, a fictional treatment, kind of his ideas, uh, and his work on, um, on, uh, Turkey, uh, uh-huh. and some, on some of the, uh, you know, increasing Islamism in that country, uh, the autocratic tendencies of Erdogan and how some of that may align with, uh, some of the prophecies in Daniel 8, uh, and, you know, the Turkish goat and the Iranian ram. So we're, we're kind of working a, you know, a, I don't know, sort of a, uh, You know, in the vein of, like, Josie Rosenberg's books, or even in the vein of, in in a much different style, but in the vein of, you know, the old Left Behind series. So kind of uh, taking that kind of fictionalized treatment and trying to um, poke at prophetic... Possibilities, along with the geopolitical, along with everything else. Well, um,
2: okay. Now, now let's not whiz by your book, uh, Blaze, too quickly. <laughs> sure, because, sure, sure, sure. Man, I'm, I'm telling you, okay. I, I was, I was really captivated by this book. Um, well, let's talk about it. Well, walk us through Blaze in terms of, uh, I, 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 Well, obviously, it, it. I see a lot of. Similarities, uh, you know, to what's taking place. And, um, but walk us through this. Walk us through Blaze, the, the character development, the, um, or, or the plot, actually, the plot development. As to sure, what's going so, on. Go ahead.
3: Um, so the main character is Blaze McIntyre. He's an Irish American, um, CIA, uh, agent, uh, spy, assassin. Uh, he's kind of been out of the field. He's kind of uh, inundated with family life. He he's uh struggling with the, the mundane aspects of it. He's got this warrior spirit inside of him that just feels like he has to go back in the field, but he's trying to be the good father and the good husband and live the family life. He has his kind of mentor um, you know, uh, in the CIA, Chuck Gallagher, who's a real old school tough guy, kind of crafted in the vein of either Clint Eastwood or a Clint Eastwood like character. Um, and so, you know, there's scenes where they're in the in the boxing ring and they're fighting each other and they're kind of insulting each other with generational insults, you know, old guy, young guy type stuff. And and um, this guy kind of uh, coaxes him back in the field. And there's this calling upon Blaze's life that he feels, and he eventually <laughs> breaks it to his wife after much trepidation, and he goes back in the field. So a lot of that setup happens in the first half of the novel, and then it, it kind of breaks into the actual operation, which is Operation Persian Trinity. Uh, which refers to the three Iranian nuclear plants that in the novel they go and, um, basically disrupt and go to try to stop the nuclear, uh, production of, you know, of, of uh, centrifuges and everything else. Um, it involves a, a fictional, um, deployment of the Stuxnet virus. This would be the Stuxnet 2.0 in the novel, uh, based on the historical Stuxnet virus, uh, that the Israelis helped, uh, helped us with in terms of uh, disrupting uh, uh, their Iranian uh, nude production. Uh, and so throughout the novel, you know, he's going on this mission. He has a sidekick who's a, a, a kind of an interesting character in the novel. Blaze is a Christian. He's struggling with his faith in a lot of areas because he has some of this violence in his past from being in the military. He's trying to reconcile that with with his faith in God. Trying to reconcile the chaos in the world with his faith in God. So he's constantly meeting with his pastor and having spiritual discussions. Uh, and so it gets into a lot of the nitty gritty of that rawness. Um, and, um, he has this sidekick who, uh, who is, who is, who's not a person of faith, who's an intellectually honest agnostic, uh, who is Jewish and who has uh, himself in the novel come from the punk rock background, uh, and was actually, uh, in the novel is actually a skinhead and when i say that people are going to think of racism and neo nazis and all of that but the novel kind of brings out the reality that that movement was uh, hijacked and co-opted um by these you know racist boneheads and this character kind of goes into that you know he's he's half jewish and he's anti racist and it goes into the history of skin, skinheadism in the punk rock movement where it was really apolitical uh, to begin with and it was just working class folks getting together revolving around fashion and music uh, and kind of a working class sensibility. So you have this character in there and you mix that whole dynamic and him and Blaze kind of go back and forth in this mission and there's that camaraderie there. Um, and all along, you know, the players in the book, you have, you have Russia, you have the Tsarist character who's, you know, in the novel, actually, uh, I don't, spoiler alert, he, he, uh, he removes Putin in the novel, uh, becomes a uh, Tsar and, um, who's and you have uh, an Iranian character uh who in the novel uh would have uh, uh succeeded uh um, Ahmadinejad who I affectionately call Ajad um and he's kind of Ahmadinejad on steroids uh, you know we have now Rahini who is who gives us more moderate veneer uh he was less uh who's less uh, at least or uh, he's he's less combative than Ahmadinejad was but you still have this thread uh throughout the novel of the 12th Imam, of the hastening of the return of the promised one, the Mahadi. Um, and so kind of putting the alarm bells in the reader's mind, uh, of the reality of Iranian foreign policy being driven by this apocalyptic belief. And it's the seriousness of the belief that I try to peg in the novel. Because when people hear this, they don't, they don't believe it. They think, well, Iranian people are just like us. They care about their family. They care about their survival as, as, a, as a country, as a nation, as a people, as a heritage, as a, as a culture. Um, but the regime itself is not motivated by material things, by earthly things. They are motivated by an ideology that is utterly apocalyptic. I mean, it is David Koreshian in nature, uh, and that's how uh, you know Netanyahu has described it. Uh, and so, I really try to shine a light on this. Uh, because I think it's commonly misunderstood. I think the world um, needs to view Iran in this in this fashion. They need to know. They need to see that the threat from Iran, the root cause of it, is not just some sort of political grievance or some sort of power play or or some sort of sort of just intellectual hatred of Western culture or the U.S. or Israel. I mean, this is utterly um, spiritual in nature. And uh, you know, he comes from this Twelver belief, this Shia Twelver belief, uh, that they are put on earth uh, for the precise purpose of creating chaos and bloodshed, which are the, the the prerequisite conditions for their Islamic Messiah to return. And when he returns, he's going to, you know, he's going to invade Israel, take over Israel, and and, and really try to build a a Islamic new world order, new world order Caliphate. Um, And that's not good news for for Christians, for Jews, uh, for atheists. It's not good news for Muslims who aren't Muslim enough. It's not good good news for Sunnis. Um, And so this is really brought out throughout the
1: novel as well. Interestingly, you know, we see what's going on in the current world as we see the power consolidation in Saudi Arabia and the warmongering between Iran and Saudi Arabia. You know, even today, we're looking at the real-life possibility of seeing that come to life. And we've heard and had many guests on, prophetic experts and authors, talk about the belief in Iran, how they truly believe their their purpose here is prophetic in nature. And as you said, it's not a political or economic motive. It's a, a solely a spiritual motive that drives them to do what they do. And I'd like to, to come back to that later on in the interview. I want to ask you this. about uh, in In the book, you talk about a global economic uh, crisis. Can you kind of paint a picture of what it looks like in your book?
3: Um, yeah, so I, I wrote this book in 2007, 2008 when I began. So oh. I was, I, yeah, I I was living in the Midwest at the time, uh, in the constricting auto belt of Northwest Ohio, um, Toledo, Ohio, and, and the old adage of, so goes Detroit, as, you know, as goes Detroit, so goes. To- Toledo was very much in my mind. So I was doing financial planning at the time. You know, you had the, uh, you know, the, the, financial crisis of 2008. Uh, and so, you know, I was just kind of forecasting what the world would look like in the future, uh, in terms of just that type of chaos. Uh, you know, thank God, uh, you know, we're seeing some, uh, some very good trending now financially, in the, uh, at least in the stock market and, and, uh, you know, low unemployment. Um, but yeah, so that is a piece of my book, is, is that type of, of backdrop.
1: Okay. And I, I, I have not, um, I have not read the book, not yet at least, but it, it definitely sounds interesting in that, um, the synopsis on, on your website and folks's website is com. There you can order the book from Amazon and, and, uh, get more information. And, and, and here on the website, you, say, Obama has finished his second term and a new president is in office. Right. The global right. economy has spiraled to new lows with increasing complexity, unforeseen in, by any of the experts. And then it, it says this, it says, uh, world leaders are seeking trans, transnational solutions while they are simultaneously swallowing up private industry without hesitation, their effort to harmonize the world and consolidate power and control. That sounds exactly, I mean exactly, <laughs> for what the, exactly is going to happen when they do try to bring down... Uh, and, and replace the global financial system with whatever it is they bring in uh to consolidate that power and um you know that really caught my eye because we see right now uh the the swings from uh, Obama when he was in office in the two thousand and eight financial crisis to what we're seeing today, which is you know record highs in the stock market the g d p growth is up, and uh people think that an economic crisis is is long and far away um from where we are now, but in reality it, it could be any time. And it seems that uh, a lot of these things, whether it's war or whatever, starts with, you know, these economic issues. And I thought that was pretty interesting that you included that in your book. Andrew, we got about one minute left, one and a half minutes left before the break. Sure. So, um, just real quick, your thoughts on, on the, the Gog and Magog prophecy in Ezekiel. Do you see with what we're seeing now in the Middle East and what we've seen from the Arab Spring during the Obama administration to what we see today? That this prophecy is is unfolding.
2: Yeah, that's a minute question, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to wait till after the break, or should I just give you maybe no, my punchline?
2: <laughs> no, you can wait till after the break. Uh, okay. And and, and t- to tell us again the type of cigar. The- this
3: is a a Cardiff black. Ah. Uh, very rich Maduro cigar. It's uh, okay.
2: outstanding. All right. All right. We had a number of people requesting by email. That's their Good. question. So, right. Okay. Uh, sure. So, all right. Our guest, of course, tonight. Uh, Andrew uh, Thorpe King. Yeah. Not, book, uh, I knew that. Blaze Operation Persian uh, Trinity. A, a very interesting read. And more coming. More books. Come, uh, another book coming. Uh, again, an uh, upcoming nonfiction book with. Uh, 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 it's the es- yeah, with the es- it's the eschatology, stupid and, truer the true root of cause of uh, hegemonic
1: Islamism. Go ahead. Uh, uh, Andrew, reading the, the part about um, the character Blaze, it reminded me, it gave me flashbacks of uh, Denny Green <laughs> from Cleveland, the Irish mobster who uh, oh, took yeah, on the absolutely. Italian mob. But that's what I got when I was reading the... Uh, yeah. on your website about blaze uh the irish warrior i think that's uh, yeah. So
3: that, that's another thing i didn't really uh touch on but he his um uh, him being a mick so to speak is there's jokes throughout the book about him being irish and <laughs> you know his irish stubbornness and uh you know everything else so it really plays on kind of that celtic humor within the book as well
1: well that's awesome i can't wait to read it we'll be right back with andrew thorpe king for the next hour right after this break don't go anywhere On this Wednesday edition of the Hagman Report, Andrew Thorpe King is our guest. Uh, I love that term. He's serial entrepreneur, novelist, tattoo enthusiast, cigar lover, punk rocker, and a student of the eschatology of the three Abrahamic faiths. And so much more than that. And we're talking with him now about his book, Blaze, Operation Persian Trinity, which you can get from his website, AndrewThorpKing.com. You, you it's know,
3: also available on the uh, WND Superstore uh, super as well.
1: Perfect. All right. Yeah.
2: Y- you know, folks, I could whoop them, right? <laughs> okay, I, I can go whoop them. I, 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 I'm I'm kidding, of course. Uh, no, I, I just, uh, you know, if I took my shirt off, I'd look like that too. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, a little humor, a little levity, never hurts. I, it I love it. I love it. All right. Uh yeah okay so so let's uh, where do you want to start because during the break I I got uh, you know where do you want to start here at this point
3: because, let's just yeah talk a little bit about the project I'm working on now with Joel yeah. Richardson okay yeah uh, author of Islamic Antichrist uh you know great teacher on uh, eschatology both uh. Um, uh, Christian eschatology and Islamic eschatology and the difference between the two. I've been a big fan of his.
2: Let me me stop you right there because, uh, man, I had a real hard time with the uh, believing that we would have an Islamic Antichrist or could have an Islamic... I thought that that whole Islamic Antichrist idea was just crazy. Given... In my view, given my understanding of the depiction of what the Antichrist would be, um, I, I would in my I guess my stumbling block was and and continues to be to some extent how could you possibly have a Muslim who would be accepted on such a global scale and, and that was where I was at and in some respects still am in terms sure. of summing block and if you can address that first only because we, we've had Stan Dale talk about this and, of course, Joel Richardson. And I just want to hear your thoughts, and then we can move on from there. I, I just, if you don't sure. mind, humor me.
3: Yeah, I, I would definitely say that Joel's the expert on that. You know, he's definitely the OG on that whole topic. Sure. Uh, but just to kind of parrot what I've learned from him and, and, and what I kind of think is, is the case is uh, that this notion that the Antichrist actually rules the earth is really not what Scripture says. Uh, the Antichrist more, uh, more than anything, it's, it's likely to be more of a, a regional power, uh, throughout the Middle East. Uh, cause that's where this, this drama takes place. Uh, and the Bible talks about the Antichrist warring with other nations and other powers. And you don't war with other nations and other powers if, if you're in control of them all. Um, so this notion that everybody um, just accepts, and all nations uh, accept and relinquish their power to the Antichrist doesn't seem to be scriptural. And that's that's kind of the the, the general, I think, misconception uh, that is out there, and, and that kind of I've learned from from, from mm-hmm. learning from Joel. So okay. I think that that would be, I think, his probably rebuttal to, to okay. that idea.
2: And, and thank you for for that uh, description, and then thank you for humoring me on that question. All right, now sure. now, now, now go ahead and continue. I, I didn't mean to take you off your stride there.
3: No, no, no. Okay, so yeah, so. Yeah, so this book I'm working with Joel on, uh the working title is Ankara Ascension and the Rise of the Mesquelum. Uh and really it's just kind of taking Joel's work on his his um, his uh studying of, of Turkey and the, the rise of autocratic power uh in Turkey with Erdogan, uh and, and looking at the prophecy of, of Daniel eight, particularly verses five through eight, and uh the, the confrontation between uh the Turkish uh goat and the Iranian ram. And looking at what's happening right now in in Syria and Iraq and how that territory is really, you know, that's the prize that you're seeing Saudi Arabia and Iran uh looking at and looking for dominance. You know, when we pushed Saddam Hussein out of Iraq and we kind of created that chaos there and that vacuum that kind of broke down that wall that uh the Sunni Iraq had was holding, you know, against Iran to keep them back from coming into that area. Uh, so Saudi Arabia is not happy about that. Turkey's not happy about that. Uh, I believe Turkey is really just sitting on the sidelines waiting for our course that's going to come in. Uh, and you know, um, this book teases around that idea that, uh, you know, instead of the popular theory, uh, that in Ezekiel 38 and 39, world, Gog and Magog, the theory that, uh, we're looking at a, that Magog is Russia uh and that uh that is you know one of the, the leaders along with Iran of the alliance that comes against Israel. This uh hypothesizes really that it's it's more likely Turkey coming from you know the area of Asia Minor. Uh and so uh that being the case, this this kind of focuses on that possibility uh throughout the book. And and the book spans from in the beginning of the book from, uh, the Arab Spring. So it's kind of historical, uh, then spans into forecasting into near-term, um, geopolitical, uh, happenings, uh, and, and becomes more of a, a forward look and goes all the way to, uh, what is, uh, hypothesized or basically proposed in the book of, of, of a fall of Erdogan, which precedes a larger, um, reign of Turkey, uh, which is, um, taken up by even more powerful leader than Erdogan, but in the shape of Erdogan. And again, a lot of this is kind of played out and uh mapped out uh towards Daniel eight. And so that's kind of the the, the working prophetic constructs. Um then there's also kind of a theme of, of what's called uh, what we call the mesquilum in the book. Uh and this comes from the w- root word mesquele which is enlightenment, um which um Daniel twelve two talks about um Um, I was never good at remembering Bible verses even in Sunday school, so hold one second, I have it printed out here, I'll read Daniel Um, 12.2. Daniel 12.2 reads, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Um, So the the notion of of those who have insight kind of uh, being these kind of prime movers uh, in the end of days who kind of lead others through their unique insights into the times. Um, so in the novel, we kind of create this band of what we call musculum who have special insight uh, into the times. And, um, you know, one of them is a digital nomad. She's a female. She's the next UFC fighter. Um, and so she's she's she kind of ends up being, you know, kind of the co-leader. One of them uh, is a, a monk in a monastery in Iraq um, so we have this real kind of eclectic cast of characters who end up having this unique um, insight uh, towards the end times, and they call themselves the Muschilum. Uh And so they have this intersection with a, with a CIA agent, and this is a different character uh, cast than what's in Blaze. Um, and so we kind of tease around those ideas. Um, um, and like I was saying before, um, this book, I've really been, uh, I've been studying, you know, a bunch of different authors, uh, but in, tic- in particular looking at Brad Thor's style of really cutting shorter chapters, having uh, an interesting solve for a dramatic problem in every, in every chapter and keeping the pace moving uh, with good character development, lots of suspense, um, lots of historical references, and, uh, again, a lot of this kind of futuristic forecasting as well.
1: Uh, before the break, Andrew, I asked you, uh, not to backpedal too far, but just real quick with Gog and Magog, yeah. Um, two things One I wanted to talk to you about The interpretation of Gog and Magog Because people Are divided or, or have different beliefs As to the timing And of the people involved uh, Or the nations involved And there are there's scripture that deal with um, Gog and Magog Before and Apparently after the thousand year reign uh, We have the Ezekiel And then you have uh, Revelation 20 do and Joel Richardson has a piece, uh, folks, on WorldNet Daily titled "The Truth About Gog and Magog," which is a uh, which is a great piece. But do you think that we are, in what you're what we're seeing today with, as you said, the Arab Spring and what we're seeing in Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Iran now, that this is forming the the Gog and Magog conflict?
3: I do. I really do. I mean, again, I'm not dogmatic about it. I don't have a crystal ball, you know. and and if I did find one, it was probably, would probably be broken and polished, uh, just like I'm, I'm broken and, and unpolished as a, as a human <laughs> being. Um but, um, I do. I mean, and that, that drives me a lot and it drives me a lot in my personal life. You know, um, I yeah. talked about this on, um, on, on Caravan to Midnight as well. Um, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, they're kind of reality mirror to, uh, see and feel and be reminded of, of God's grace and God's relevance and God's interest in their daily life comes from, you know, different things. I mean, it might be from looking at nature and, and looking at that kind of static beauty in nature and how that reflects God's imprint and creativity. For me, that's that's one way that that I, I relate to God and I'm constantly reminded of his presence. But in a in a more dramatic way for me, in a more impactful way, a way that makes me want to be a better man every day. Is when I'm looking at the headlines, when I'm looking at the the contours of geopolitics, and I'm I'm looking at the things happening on the earth in that realm on, on the political stage, geopolitical stage. Um, I look at those and, and I see, and I I think we're living in those times. Um, you know, obviously not a date setter. I'm not you know Harold Camping or anything like that. You know, nobody knows the day or the hour. Not the father, not the son. Uh, the son doesn't know because uh, he was superniscient but he was not omniscient when he was in human form. Um, so, you know, we certainly can't know. Um, but, you know, from, from where I'm sitting, these things are forming. We ought to keep our eye on it and, and be good, good, uh, interpreters of the time as best we can and try to align our lives, uh, with being prepared psychologically, mentally, spiritually, even, uh, physically, financially for, um, potentially exciting and potentially chaotic times.
1: No, I, I agree with you 100%. And, uh, the only way I've been able myself uh, in my life to make sense of what we see happening in the news is to align it with scripture. <clears throat> and when, when you start doing that, at least when I started doing that, you, so many things are, are revealed to you. If you're reading the, the Bible, if you're praying, and if you're, you're, you know, seeking discernment and truth, um, you know, certain things just line up and match. And, you know, with Israel becoming a nation again. A- Amen. Amen. And we see all these things happening, and none of it's by accident. All of it's by design towards a, a, uh, you know, greater plan. And the, the one thing I find so fascinating about the Gog and Magog, as I mentioned earlier, is that it seems that this conflict starts before, you know, the, the tribulation period, but ends after the thousand year millennial reign. And I don't understand how that looks or, or how that works, but, um, it's fascinating that this conflict is mentioned you know, from Ezekiel to the end of Revelation, and the, the the conflict seems to go on for a very long time. And um some people have a so, differing opinion on, on who, who the players yeah. are in that, but either so, way... I mean, I,
3: um, theories or findings or assertions, really, uh, is that the War of Gog and Magog and the War of Armageddon are one and the same, mm-hmm. that one does not precede the other. Uh, and this aligns with his idea of an Islamic Antichrist, uh, and of, of Turkey being Magog and of Gog coming from Turkey and of Gog being the Antichrist. And Gog and Antichrist are, are one and the same. Uh, and then those battles are the same, just told from different viewpoints, uh, and different writers, uh, throughout the scriptures. And, uh, I tend to believe that that's, that, that seems to make more sense, uh, the way that he lays it out. I can't speak to it with, you know, the scholarship that he does. Um, and, and one of the main, Reasons that he asserts this is that this notion that, that somehow Islam is going to be wiped out uh, throughout the war of Gog and Magog even if you believe that uh, Magog is Russia you still have all those other Islamic nations that would conceivably be wiped out and people think that Islam would be wiped out from the face of the earth if, if that was a separate battle and if Russia was Magog um, uh, but he go, kind of goes into the population Islamic populations in Indonesia and other countries that have nothing to do with this battle and um, and, and I tend to think that Islam is here to stay. It's here to stay until the return of Christ. I really believe that Islam is the primary effective, heavily potent delivery system used by Satan at scale to infect the inhabitants of the earth with definably anti-Christic, anti-Semitic chaos and violence. And as a delivery system, it's, it's not 100% effective. It's not It's not 100% penetrative. Um, there's a lot of, um, God conscious, God sensitive, uh muslims of conscience uh that use their free will and and don't uh get mobilized to jihad uh but for the ones that are susceptible um the impact of the mobile the jihad mobiliz- mobilizing um tool of of islam that satan is using that impact is quantitatively and 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 qualitatively frightening and uh exponentially threatening yeah um and so you know, I think I, I think that is the the biggest challenge, and ought to be the biggest focus of of, of God's people on the earth right now. Uh, of even those who don't know God, I think we need to get the blinders off on on Islam. It's not going anywhere. No, it, it's only becoming more brazen. Yeah,
2: I, I, I'm a, I, I like history. I, I like to look back, and I like to analyze um, current events through a historical and biblical perspective. In in modern times, what do, what do you uh, see as the flashpoint in modern times of the resurgence of, of Islam, aside from uh, 9-11, that aside? Um, to me, it was something maybe that took place in the 80s uh uh perhaps or uh even going back to 72 with the with the olympics i i'm i'm just not sure in your mind what was that moment that 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 put islam on the map on the, on the, on the on the key terror map aside from 911 or do you believe 911 was that hinge moment his hinge historical moment
3: i think it was bubbling up obviously for a long time it obviously already existed in the world. I mean, you go back all the way to the Barbary pirates and, yep. and and how our Marines were called Leathernecks for a reason because they had to put leather these leather protective straps around their neck to, to not be smited by the Islamic pirates that were coming after them because their, their book told them to. Um, so, you know, it's been around forever. It's been around before uh, the rebirth of the State of Israel. You know? So uh, they, that wasn't the catalyst for for. What we're seeing now, um, but to your point, the way that it's kind of be, I, I kind of do think that nine eleven was a catalyst to get it on the minds of, of people in the West. It wasn't so much on my radar until after nine eleven. It wasn't on a lot of people's uh, radar until after nine eleven. So I think that's been the catalyst, and then I think you see um, the growth of it and the kind of the potency of it growing a lot because of of, of, communication and the closeness we feel in the world and, 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 the interconnectedness, uh, through the internet and everything else. I think that is just, uh, you know, somewhat weaponized the ideology. Um, you know, and I also think he, you know, this is kind of a, a sub point, but in my view, I look at the two, the difference between the two cultures. I look at the feminization of the West and I look at the focus on masculinity, uh, and pride and the focus on, um, kind of, uh, a, a, an uber cultural confidence. Uh, and in, in Islamic culture. And I think that contrast is, is, is pretty astounding as well. And I think in the West, if we don't, uh, in a righteous way, start to mirror that type of con- confidence and start to, uh, see ourselves as, um, being more strong and being more de- uh, uh, decisive, uh, in the face of, of, of this confidence, uh, on the other end that really seeks to destroy us, I think we're going to have real, real, real issues.
1: Yeah, and we're already seeing those those issues come to, to fruition right in front of us. It's hard when you have, you know, uh we'll say half the population. I know it's not that high, but you have the, you know, so many of these politicians in Washington, so many in the media and in, you know, universities, and a, a good portion of society, I'd say, what, maybe 25%, are so eager to call you, you know, Islamophobic, xenophobic, when you call out terrorism, when you call out, you know, unchecked <laughs> immigration, it's like you have people in this country working towards its destruction uh, while trying to to tear you down for trying to prevent it and making you to be the enemy. And I know later on you want to, uh, the case for division, um, yeah. we can get into that a little bit later, but it's just so mind-boggling to see, I call it insanity, to see the insanity of, you know, what the the people at the top, portions of society are trying to promote to us the, the moral bankruptcy, the anti-American sentiment, uh, you know, you're, you're a racist if you don't want millions of, of uh, Muslim immigrants to come in here. And we see it in, in some of the Western world, in Canada, we've seen uh, that they are paying reparations to ISIS fighters who are returning from the battlefield. Same thing we're seeing in Sweden. They're even uprooting uh, in many of these nations their own citizens to replace them with, with um, Muslim refugees and it's just so frustrating when you have the whole power complex cheering it on and when you know that what they're here to do and some of them at least are here in in pursuit of uh you know destroying Christianity destroying the western world and implementing you know islamic law throughout the, the world so that's really that that's something that that really gets under my skin and uh this what we see with, with this, um in the Middle East, that's a different animal. And many people here in America will say, well, it's not happening here. You know, this is, this is in the Middle East. But one thing that so many Americans and Christians fail to understand is the world doesn't revolve around America or what happens in America. And Absolutely. In the center of the world is, is the Middle East and mm-hmm. sit up and take notice. <clears throat> and that is lost to many people, unfortunately and it just seems like i mean how is this going to end when you have this great division in this society and, and two polar opposites of, of political ideologies can can the bridge be gapped through debate and discussion or is it going to is it going to take much more than that
3: um yeah, that's a good question i know that i have the uh, precise answer to that but i want to kind of go back to to one of your one of your points there just talking about kind of the cultural suicide that we see and 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 so many people who, who may have good intentions Who may have a good heart But kind of Are looking to demonize Anyone that criticizes uh, With a discerning mind um, Some of the tenets of Islam and, and what that leads to In a natural logical interpretation uh, by, by, by some Just some Muslims um, I look at that And I think about these people And I think they're really Just trying to find a way To feel good about themselves If they can say that I identified uh, Islamophobia I identified racism And I called it out, I'm a good person And so it's this mechanism to feel good about themselves To find meaning in their own life And to put that stamp of approval On themselves, that self stamp um, And again, I think when you have A search for meaning that's unpegged from a search For truth, it's dangerous uh, A lot of people can search for and find Meaning and, and it's not good You know, you look at uh, Antifa Antifa has meaning, ISIS has meaning Neo-Nazis have meaning, but they don't have truth. And so you also have to search for truth if you're going to search for meaning. They have to go hand-in-hand. Hand. They have to work in tandem to have any sort of, um, you know, actualization um, that, that's good, that's safe. Um, so I, I think that's a real problem. Um, they're not looking for truth. They're not looking to uh, really dig right. into Quran and distinguish uh, what's being read and how it's being read, or really even how it's written.
1: No, you're exactly right, and and the way that you phrase that, cultural suicide, is is the proper term. And you did make the distinction because some of these people think they're doing the right thing by promoting what they're promoting, even though we don't understand it or understand where they're coming from. We have to, you know, always remember to be forgiving and and to try to understand at the same time. Never, you know, um, bend our values, you know, because someone else is trying to, to name call us. We have a, we have about 38 minutes left and I know we got a lot to get into. You got sure. an article you want to talk about, the top 10 yeah. punk rock heroes of the new right. Yeah. We don't have the article in front of us, so we're going okay. to be relying on on you for this, but let's get into this.
3: Yeah, so this is unpublished. I'm going to submit it and have it <coughs> posted on WorldNet Daily probably sometime soon here. Um uh, but the premise is essentially uh you know, I was watching uh the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and I think it was 2016. And Ice Cube, famous rapper and, and actor, who was in N.W.A., he gets up on stage, and he's accepting an award for N.W.A. to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're not a rock and roll band. They're a hip-hop band. Uh, and so he addresses that right up right off the bat when he comes out, and he says, uh, you know, rock and roll is not a style of music. Rock and roll is a spirit, uh, and it's a spirit that, uh, you know, doesn't conform to this or that and thinks outside the back box. I can't remember uh, his exact quote. Um, but I happen to agree with that. And uh, coming from the punk rock ethos and the individualism of that and the free thinking spirit of that, um, you know, I would drill down a notch or two more and say punk rock is a spirit. It's not a style music. It's not a philosophy. It's not a political ideology. It's none of those things. It's a spirit and it's a spirit, uh, that is constantly looking, uh, to maximize individualism, to, to look for truth and to find new ways to really, uh, circumvent gatekeepers. Uh, to even, you know, crash the gates and to find new ways of creative destruction, uh, and, and to move forward, uh, and advance something you believe in either personally or, or on a macro scale. And so I look at this kind of uh, movement that I, that I sense is really bubbling up and it's really positive and it involves an eclectic, eclectic, uh, kind of mix of pundits and activists and commentators on the right. And it's really, really exciting. And it feels like. The beginning is a punk rock. You know, I look at Robert Spencer. I look at Milo Yiannopoulos. I look at even Glenn Beck, uh, who I'm actually heavily influenced by. I, I always love Glenn Beck. Don't always agree with him. Um, uh, Glenn Beck, um, let me see some of these other, uh, other top 10 here. Um, I think I mentioned Robert, not Richard, Robert Spencer, Peter Thiel, uh, you know, of PayPal fame, who's also a Trump advisor. Kid Rock, the, the rapper uh, and rapper country rocker. Gavin McInnes from CRTV, who was an ex-punk rocker himself and is now kind of a, a, a big uh, kind of emerging star of the new right, has a show, like I said, on CRTV, Mark Levin's uh, online channel. Pamela Geller, um, Dana Lash, Sabo, who's a street artist in L.A., who's just phenomenal, yeah, you know, his website unsavoryagents.com is tremendous. Uh, he just really kind of repurposes the punk rock artistic satire spirit to poke you know, hard, you know, hard fun at liberal hypocrisy, elitism and corruption. Uh, and he really lifts up the true rebels of, of limited government. Um, you know, it's this one poster that kind of is a parody on the old Sex Pistols poster. And instead it says, never mind the Democrats. Here's the deplorables. Uh, he's the one who made that famous, uh, or semi-famous, uh, Ted Cruz poster of him covered in tattoos, smoking a cigarette. He's got the Churchill tattoo and the Eagle tattoo. And uh, Ted Cruz, I know commented about it once on, on some segment on the, on the new show. Um, so I, I kind of, I'm not going to go into specifically why I chose these 10. I'll do that in the article, uh, which will be published soon. Um, but I just sense this movement coming up, uh, and, and the mechanism that, that a lot of these, uh, activists have really kind of chosen to, to make their beliefs aware, uh, you know, uh, known. It, it really mirrors the punk rock spirit. You know, they weren't, they weren't funded by some donors. They didn't come in with some suits. They have really authentic places that they came from. And a lot of these, these people that I mentioned actually come from the punk rock scene, not all of them. Um, but they're doing a lot of bold things. I mean, um, oh yeah, tell, tell, to tell a story, I can, so I think of the early punk days when I was a, a skateboarder and a punk rocker like back in middle school. Uh, I wasn't built like I am today, and I can remember riding my skateboard, and just because I had a different look or different interest, I would get jumped by eight or nine football players, and they would just beat me, beat me down. You know, So I think of those type of obstacles. And then I think of Robert Spencer getting poisoned in Iceland. I think of Dana Lash having to be forced out of her house because of her being an NRA spokesperson. Um, you know, I think of, 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 Glenn Beck and his boldness for bringing Joel, bringing Joel Richardson on, uh, his Fox News 5 p.m. show and contrasting or, or really relating the similarities between the Christian Antichrist and the Islamic Messiah. You know, I think of some of these bold things that a lot of people have taken a lot of very risky things to do. And they have people come of the lynch mob on the left. Mm-hmm. Now quickly they'll call anybody racist, sexist, homophobe.
0: Yeah. Try to destroy
3: people's <laughs> characters, try to destroy people's lives. And so these people that keep going after that's happened, I absolutely admire them. And to me, that is just, it's just—it's—it's it's the punk rock heroism of the new right. That's what it is to me.
1: And, you know, you're very right about, um, you know, a lot of these people uh, not caring what, what the society says, especially on the left, mostly on the left, and, you know, continuing to move forward with what they believe in in their agenda. And, you know, just just a few of these. Richard Spencer. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. He's the most anti-Muslim, you know, racist person out there, and yet yeah, he's done some some really awesome things too. You know, G, he's the editor of, of Jihad Watch, and he yeah, Robert Spencer now, not Richard. Robert. Oh, I'm sorry, Robert Spencer. Yeah, yeah I the, call him the, Robert Richard Spencer M- is the white supremacist guy that they. Yeah,
3: exactly right.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
3: They would the, love him to be Richard, too, but he's clearly not.
1: Yeah. No, but that's the thing that this this Robert Spencer is, uh, you know, you look and you see uh, Southern Poverty Law Center writing all these yeah. terrible things about. And in my book, if the Southern Poverty Law Center is writing bad things about you, you're doing something right. Um, you know, to
3: that point, and I don't mean to cut you off there, but to that point, I wrote a, a fictionalized article on W&D called The United Sharia States of America, uh, where I imagine what America would look like if it was uh, taken over by Sharia. And I kind of got the uh, idea from that Amazon show, uh, The Man in the High Castle, which kind of does a revisionist history look at what if Germany actually took over the U.S. and Japan had the West Coast. And I thought, well, in the future, what would it look like in America if uh, we were taken over by Sharia? And so I wrote this fictionalized article on WOD, got a lot of shares. And uh as soon as I saw that 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 article was posted on uh, rightwingwatch.org, I knew I was doing something right.
1: <laughs> That's right. Um and we don't have to go through this whole list but one more at least kid brock he was uh, flirting with the idea of running for a senate seat seemed to get a lot of support even in in michigan and and the, the left was you know absolutely uh, going crazy about this yeah and then if i remember correctly i he was at a uh basketball game and he was asked if he was going to run for senate and he said no and maybe i have the the, the no. details of that messed up what happened there do we know
3: I, I don't know if he said that at the basketball game. I know that he was booed at the basketball game, con- con- contrasted with Eminem, who was not booed because Eminem criticized That's Trump, right. you know, lockstep with the, the cultural zeitgeist of the left. Um, but, uh, Kid Rock, I mean, he took a huge risk even by pretending he was going to run for Senate, even though it was a prank. I mean, the fact that he had the boldness to speak out on his true beliefs, even with the profanity laced way that Kid Rock does it, you know, there's an authenticity there people connect with they connect with his support of uh of blue collar uh, people that uh, you know really take to Trump and take to that you know to that spirit um and i applaud him for that you know i mean i agree with everything kid rock says or everything kid rock does but in terms of his boldness to do that to me yeah. that's punk rock i mean he you look at hollywood who has this lockstep um you know uh, liberal messaging And he deliberately chooses to write music that connects with and speaks to, uh, Hicks in the heartland instead of liberals in Hollywood. Um, nobody else is doing that. I mean, look at his video for Poe Dunk, which is just a tremendous video. Um, it reminds me of a weekend in West Virginia, you know, and at the same time, Kid Rock, he's got a half black child. He's very quick, uh, to partition any sort of, uh, false notions of all rednecks being racist, you know, and he, you know, he kind of embraces this redneck aesthetic uh with pride and he's proud to be an American. He's proud to be a Trump supporter. Um that's bold, given the fact that he is likely alienating a lot of his audience by coming out and saying that. And I think the more more we see these unique, bold voices come from unexpected places, um, I think the better off the movement of the new right's gonna be. You know, and I think it's to the peril of kind of the legacy right or the old right. Uh, if, if they um, distance themselves unnecessarily or too quickly just because they may not understand or agree with, you know, every, uh, you know, checkbox uh, of of some of these personalities. And, um, yeah.
1: I really think if Kid Rock ran for that Senate seat, he would have won. I think he was Absolutely. one of the few exceptions of people in the entertainment world who could make that change. And he was one of them. Okay. Um, unfortunately, he, he's not running before we yeah before we move on from this um what is it about i mean obviously i understand why so many of the people in america love trump he doesn't mince words he he calls it like he sees it especially calling out the mainstream media for their their craziness and their lies what is it with the the establishment republicans that you just said something that maybe is right that they don't understand um I i don't understand why they can't support this guy unless they are, uh, you know, working against the best interests of the American people. I, I don't understand why, especially people on the right, won't align with him, at least for the sake of the agenda, and say as much.
2: If I can just jump in here, I think I understand. And it's it's not, it's not a, uh, um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a decided anti-Trump movement. But that's just my two cents, and go ahead and offer yours.
3: Yeah, so I think I think it's fear. I think it's a disruption of their their country club um little enclave of it's a disruption of their vision of of who they believe they were and always will be. They didn't want anybody else coming in with any sort of different aesthetic, any sort of different tone, any different style. They don't really want that many new ideas. You know, they're they're quite comfortable just uh settling in the middle ground with Democrats um uh, just to just to, just to keep power or, or, or do whatever. Um, they don't want radical change. Uh, radical change is divisive. Radical change creates conflict. Radical change creates strife and tumult. Uh, radical change, uh, you know, is not comfortable. Donald Trump is not comfortable. Donald Trump is a divider, and I think it is a good thing. Uh, John McCain was not a divider. John McCain lost because he wasn't a divider. Um, Mitt Romney lost because he was afraid to be a divider. And again, I don't think we should divide to intentionally malign people or be antagonistic, but in the pursuit of truth and in standing for truth and in trying to aggressively advance a, an agenda to the fullest extent, I think uh, there's a case for division. Uh, you know, this is kind of one of the segues well. One of the things mm-hmm. I want to talk about is the case for division. You know, something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, the, one of the, my favorite record producers, Rick Rubin, uh, the long beard, you know, he produced everything from the Beastie Boys to, uh, Kid Rock to, uh, Johnny Cash's, uh, uh tremendous, uh, uh, you know, recordings, uh, later in life, Red out Chili Pepper Slayer, the list goes on. You know, I recently heard a quote from him that says, great art divides. And I think he's right. You know, everything from Elvis to Ozzy to Johnny Cash to great rock, great art divides. I also think great movements divide. Uh, Jesus was not really a uniter. <laughs> think of, think about some of the words of Jesus, you know, talking about, uh, within a household, people are going to disagree and be divided based on who they believe he is. He predicted division. He set the tone that division would be the norm, mm-hmm. uh, for, for those that make decisive action on what they believe. Uh, look at the MAGA movement with Donald Trump. That was decisively divisive and it worked. Um, and, and I think that there's, that's something that needs to continue, and it needs to continue. You know, obviously with strategic thought um, and without going over the line. Now, this division has nothing to do with race; has everything to do with ideology and, and, and looking to effectuate what's best for this country, what's exactly, best for hu- and what's best for human flourishing as well.
2: Exactly, and, and w- without that, you you get into compromise. You get into the tolerance of the intolerant. Of what we exactly. should not tolerate, and, and you're exactly right. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, as you said, you know the uh, the great art divides, great movements divide. Uh, where does that where does that leave society? As we talked about earlier, we have this division, uh, two separate belief systems, ideologies, uh, and it seems that the division is greater than ever. And we we can look at that as a positive or a negative. When you look at it as a positive. When we look at it, also in terms of scripture, as you said, uh, Jesus forewarned that there would be great division. We're also told that uh, as we continue to move through the end times, that you know Jesus is going to take his people and and uh, show them things. They're going to understand what's going on. He's basically going to move them into you know one area uh, mentally, spiritually, and you are going to have the rest of the world uh, that's going to be against them. But th- there is mm-hmm. still going to be that division between the the wheat and the tares. As it says in scripture. Yeah, talking- so I,
3: think, I think we need to just learn to be comfortable with division, learn to expect it, uh, and, and learn to notice it and learn to promote it when the division is moving in the direction of truth and where we're trying to hold that divide. Um, I, I think this notion of false unity or, or is unity being a goal is really, it shouldn't be the goal, particularly if it's, if it's watering down truth, lukewarm, I spit you out. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that unity uh, by default should be the goal in, in right. everything we do in life.
1: Well, Andrew, let me ask you this, because uh, this is something that that is very interesting to me. We have this group of people, I guess you'd call them the, the counterculture from the 60s, the anti-establishment, that somehow has seemed to all roll into the establishment, to the group things, to the, the globalist movement. To where we see so much of the left and, and these people who were once part of the counterculture, who were once anti-establishment, mm-hmm. are all group thinking and are all, you know, uh, they're, they've become part of the establishment. Yep. Well, now we see, you know, the people, a lot of the people who are standing for Trump, uh, you know, are on the other side of that. How did that happen? How did the people who were so anti-establishment um, become part of the establishment?
3: His power corrupts. And they were never really anti-establishment. They were anti that particular establishment at the time that they disagreed with. They just wanted to have the hold of the reins of the establishment. And that's why you get what I call Chancy Chuck and Nancy. You know, you get that element out there. They, they want power. They want to be the uh, tastemakers. They want to be the influencers on culture, on politics, on 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 the world. Um, you know, and that's why for me libertarianism is the most natural application to to individualism, to uh, free will, to um, to really the punk rock ethos for me is, you know, just don't, don't steal my stuff, don't break my bones. Uh, the government works for us. We need to keep it limited. Uh, you know, separation of church and state, that whole idea really is to protect the church from the government, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we just need to... Um, uh, and, you know, um, keep our eyes on, on trying to fight the good fight in that area.
1: One last question on, on the, on, the, on the division. And then I'm going to bring this back into, into politics. One thing that I've noticed, um, about where the, the left is right now, the alt left, the left, the rabid left, i well, will just say that, is that, uh, you basically have to be on board with all their ideas in order to be yeah. one of them. So what right. happens when when we get to issues like Israel, we'll say, because many of these people um don't like Jewish people, don't like Israel. Sure. But we haven't got to a place in our in our uh political uh discussion yet, where yet, that's come
3: yet, up. They're the compassionate and they're the tolerant ones and they're the ones that understand all the exotic, they understand all different cultures and, and they're the ones that accept people without question, right? But but mm-hmm. yet they they have a problem with Israel and they have a problem with Judaism and uh Yeah, no, I know, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you look at Antifa, and they're oxymoronic bullies. They're called Antifa. They're nothing but fa. That's what they are. Uh, they're, they're fa. They're fascist uh, <laughs> mobilizers. You know, like, the whole thing is absurd. I mean, again, like, coming from the punk rock culture, where all of a sudden, you know, you see all these people becoming these kind of groupthink activists for the left and for big government and for globalism, I'm thinking... Weren't you supposed to be DIY, do-it-yourself, outside the system, do it on your own, really rugged individualism? It, it, it doesn't align. It doesn't make any sense, and I don't understand it.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I want to make sure we get enough time in here built in to talk about the upcoming book, Failure Rules. You, you want to go there?
3: Um, yeah, sure, sure, we have yeah.
2: Yeah, let's, yeah, let, let, let's talk about your upcoming book, "Failure Rules: The Hard Times Handbook for the Diehard Entrepreneur." I, it's fascinating. Tell us about it.
3: Yeah, so that's another book I'm working uh, on right now, uh, a nonfiction book, it talks about the spirituality and psychology of entrepreneurialism, the value of failure. Um, you know, and so one of the one of the things I write about in the in the book, and I'll just kind of focus on this for now is you know really what I call the four S's uh, solitude um, uh, slumber um, uh, hold on I guess look at my notes here a little bit um, sorrow um, and, uh, and and silence you mm-hmm. know um, so it's about three or four years ago um, all within a short period of time within about a month span I went through a business divorce with a very close business partner and at the same time, um, my ex-wife decided she wanted a divorce as well. So I went through a business divorce and a personal divorce at the same time. Uh, so I went from all of a sudden I had I had no office to go to during the day, and I had no home to go to at night. I was alienated from my kids. And I was living in exile in a hotel room. It was just me and my laptop and my idea machine. And it was in that space, in the beauty of that solitude of self-reflection, of allowing the sting of sorrow uh, to really settle in, of taking inventory of, of my relationships, taking inventory of my finances, of my skills, of everything that God had blessed me with, and kind of in that chaotic stew where I found the divinity of purpose, and I found three or four threads that God laid on my heart to chase after, and they all bore fruit, and so it's these type of things I write about this book, that in that space of failure, and everybody tries to avoid failure, and it's always good to, in life, try to have some sort of straight line in whatever you're pursuing. But we all deal with failure. We all deal with sometimes being in exile. And so this book really goes into a lot of personal anecdotes, public figure, um, uh, kind of case studies um, about people that have traversed from from hard times and failure into success and what they've learned. Um, So... That's what this book uh, really digs into, you know. And I, I would say to your audience, if you're in that place, if you're in that place where, you know, you found yourself, uh, where you never thought you would be uh, estranged from a family member, where you never thought you would be in the grips of addiction, whenever you never thought you'd find yourself on the wrong side of the law, and you're in a place where you you have the opportunity to reinvent your life, to repent, to reshape your life, you have hope. There's, there. You, you need to embrace that alienation and that solitude, and use it as a springboard to find your new path forward. And um, I, I really believe that there, there's a sweetness to that. There's a power in that, uh, and there's a story in that that can benefit a lot of people.
1: Absolutely, we've had, um, you know, we're friends with with Josh Tolly. He's the author of a book called Evangelpreneur that deals with, uh, you know, the Christian aspects of of business ownership and, uh, you know, dealing with with money but I want to ask you a few questions uh, just about your experiences in life. You have people from all over uh, the uh, spectrum in in the world of employment, from entrepreneurs to employees. And some of the principles of of entrepreneurship um, applies to to all in any point of life and in any occupation. What are some of the tips you can give to people who find themselves, um, you know, in a a creative rut, Um, you know, uh, ways to get motivated ways to so, uh, I was just going to throw in there motivate me will you <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> yeah so i would say entrepreneurialism just like i say punk rock is not a style of music it's a spirit entrepreneurialism is a spirit we always hear entrepreneurial spirit and i don't think it means that you have to be your own boss i think it's a spirit that can be applied within the constructs of a w2 job uh it's the way that you approach a job do you look for ways to um, to create value outside your assigned duties do you look for innovative ways to serve the people around you and serve your boss? Are you looking for ways to leave your imprint on the company you work for? Uh, are you looking for ways in the society on the side to kind of fulfill that meaning bucket within yourself uh, and create you know, immortal content that can bless the world in a positive way? Are you looking for ways to uh, you know maximize the gifts God's given you uh, in, in, in a creative way and, and kind of a self-directed way? And so I think it's a spirit that can really be applied anywhere, but it's absolutely a decision. You have to wake up and intentionally do it. It doesn't happen by accident. Uh it might be in you, but you gotta activate it every single day. You gotta be intentional about it. And and for me it's an area that I study constantly. It's something that I think is in my DNA. Uh and no matter what um pursuit I'm going after, you know, whether it's working in banking, whether it's uh uh, you know, promoting records, whether it's writing books, whatever it is that I'm doing, you know, that spirit is just driving me. Um and it, I think it's, it's really just, uh, oh, are, are we still live? I feel like something happened here. On the no, sky. we're good. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's really just a matter of being cognizant of it, being intentional about it. Uh, and for me, I like to study a lot of, a, a lot of, uh, you know, entrepreneurial books. You know, right now, believe it or not, the one book I'm reading right now is Me Yank by Gene Simmons, and this is absolutely fascinating. It's amazing. Um, uh, Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One is another great one. James Altucher, Altucher Choose Yourself, absolutely changed my life. Um, uh, Srinitas Rao, uh, he's got a new, new book out called, um, uh, I forget the exact title, but the theme is basically, it's better to be only than the best. Uh, so I think trying to, um, create a talent stack within yourself that is utterly strange and utterly unique and is better than trying to compete with some existing known um, uh, set of skills that that a colleague has. So I think that's another kind of mark of an entrepreneur is creating un- a, a unique skill set and sometimes that means taking two existing skill sets and cross pollinating them and then becoming the best at that cross pollination. Um, so, you know, I could go on forever about this topic, but I'll pause here and see if you have a comment.
1: No, and and this is some some great advice. What about um, being an entrepreneur and dealing with money? How does being an employee dealing with money versus being an entrepreneur dealing with money? Is there any different approaches that you have? Any advice to people out there who are looking to become an entrepreneur?
3: Um, so just in terms of dealing with your personal finances as an employee, is that yeah? Kind of I, of what mean, you're
1: I, I know some people yeah. who. Are afraid to get into being an entrepreneur and, and doing things for themselves, starting their own business because of, of money issues. And they don't understand, sure. you know, how to transition from, um, you know, their steady income to managing a, a yeah. business and how to bridge the gap. What do they say? The first two years, um, most businesses yeah. don't turn a profit after the first two years. I mean, how do you, how does being an entrepreneur change uh, your management of money and how can? management of money help you become an entrepreneur.
3: Yeah, so I think a lot of it is because I think a lot of people kind of have a really limited idea on what they can do with their time and with their money and with their talent. So they have this siloed notion of what a calling is or what a job is, and you're either doing this or you're doing that. Um, and that's never been the case for me. I've always had kind of uh, you know a, pr- a pers- uh, portfolio of pursuits that I'm uh, pursuing at any one time. Uh, and one pursuit might fail or dissipate, and then I replace it with another one that I had already kind of planned, and it's you recalibrate. Almost like you're uh, rebalancing a stock portfolio, you can rebalance your pursuits and income sources. And I think approaching at that mindset where even if you're holding down a W-2 job and it has a disproportionate control on your time and your energy, you find ways in the cracks of that through technology, uh, through time management, to still pursue other things on the side. Uh, you know, I mean, there's been times where I've literally taken, uh, <laughs> taken a bathroom break at work and sent three, uh, meaningful emails to move the needle on three other side businesses. And it's just that simultaneity. You have to kind of have that in you where you can handle a lot of things at once, uh, and, and know that you can't really be married to the outcome of any one pursuit. Uh, and you have to be nimble and, and that sort and kind of have a backlog of ideas and, and be an idea machine. Um, so. And one thing too, I would say if you are holding down the job and you have something you want to do on the side, thank God for that job and use it as a platform of stability while you engage in entrepreneurial adventurism outside of that. Cause it'll give you the safety to do that, uh, without, without too much consequence and too much fear. And you can kind of test things. And when something works, you accelerate it, you scale it and you wait till it hits a uh, critical mass. And, and you make the decision, if you can then safely move into that. You know, so, uh, I, I just, I don't think there's one answer, but I think you really have to be, um, creative and learn to be, learn to be a juggler and learn to not just be focused on one thing. I think sometimes focus is the enemy of success.
1: Okay. okay. Our guest is Andrew Thorpe King. We only got about five minutes left, Andrew, and I don't know what that interference is. I don't know if you hear that, but that just, just started. There.
3: Yeah. You're seeing me and hearing me,
1: uh, like we hear you that? fine. Yeah. And now it's gone. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Okay. Okay. But we got about 5 minutes left, Andrew. We want to give you uh the rest of the the time we have to get into anything that we didn't cover, anything else you want to talk about. And also, the Failure Rules book. Do you got do you have a release date for that or an approximate time when that's coming? I, out? I
3: don't. I'm 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 going through the first round of edits right now and I'm hoping I'm hoping sometime in 2018. I'm hoping that comes out around the same time as the uh as the novel I'm working with Joel Richardson on. So I'm not sure exactly when it'll come out. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah.
2: um, In the mop-up phase here, um, sure. Five minutes. Anything you want to get into? The floor is yours.
3: Well, how about just another shameless uh, plug here for Blaze Operation Persian Trinity? Absolutely available at the the WND Superstore. Available on Amazon. Uh, Go buy it right now. Give it a read. Take a shot. Take a chance, and uh, let me know what you think. Good stuff. You know, take a ride with the uh, Irish American warrior Blaze McIntyre and give a read on this.
2: Yeah, well, I was going (laughs) to say, uh, see some of yourself in in Blaze McIntyre. I I do suspect. uh,
3: Yeah, that's kind of inevitable. It's hard to it's hard to separate sometimes, but yeah. Yeah, to put up partitions where it, where it's natural,
2: right? Of of, well, of course, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you know, as you deal with Joel Richardson, or as you as you guys are uh, working together, the eschat the eschatology of 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 things. Um, and how close are we to, to to really seeing things come to fruition? Uh, I mean,
3: honestly, I I look, I look at what's happening now with this this showdown that has gone from. From kind of this uh, shadow proxy war, Saudi Arabia and Iran to more of an outright (laughs) visible (laughs) conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran and everything that's happening in Turkey and how they're pretty much positioned on the sidelines there to to jump in and make themselves known. I mean, I feel like the novel I'm writing, I can't write it quick enough. Right. uh, Seeing, uh, you know, play out there. So, you know, I, when I sit down to to, to scope out a, a chapter or, or write a chapter, I'm like, whew, I better check the news first, make sure uh, everything still makes sense because things are just happening that quickly. Um, but again, you know, not a date setter, not dogmatic about any of this stuff, uh, just a curious uh, observer of the times uh, with the intention of, of, of how can I be more in tune with what God's doing on the earth. And that's uh, that's really where my heart's at.
2: Amen and and, and you've done a great job with with the book, uh, Blaze, and we're looking forward to your additional works coming out. Uh, Plug your website, plug your Twitter feed, your social networking.
3: Yeah, it's Andrew Thorpe King on Twitter, and uh, uh, Andrew Thorpe Thorpe com is the website. Uh, You can also find me on Facebook, Andrew Thorpe King. Uh, So take a look at that stuff, and and definitely uh, go pick up the book. And um, Really happy for anybody or, or, you know, grateful for anybody that uh, sat through this whole interview and found any value in it.
2: Oh, I, m- many interview. people have. As a matter of fact, we, we already have a couple of emails asking for you to come back uh, and uh, the open invitation for you, my
1: brother. Thank you so very great. much. And we'll uh, have you guys have, are awesome. We'll have Go to ahead. have you on with Joel Richardson. Yeah. Um, to, to promote the book that comes out, because we just had him on a few weeks ago, I believe it was. Yeah, I don't know, Top flies. Yeah, it was just very recently, uh, twice actually in the last few months. But yeah, we'll have to have you back on and you on with Joel Richardson when you guys get the new book ready to go, and and we'll promote it as best we can. And we want to thank you for for spending your time with us tonight. It was a a very interesting interview. Absolutely.
3: Thank you so much for having me, guys. I love it.
2: Hey, enjoy that cigar. God <laughs> bless. We'll be in touch.
3: Amen. I'll All Talk right. to you soon.
1: Bye. All right. Wow that was a great interview yeah and that's I like uh one thing I liked about this interview was the diversity of topics that we got into from from prophecy and in yeah. his in his book uh, blaze to yeah. entrepreneurialism and um even talking about the uh, division that we have in this country um and I think you know the the case for division where he talked about great art dividing and great movements dividing it, it's very true and i guess the question is how do we uh, go you through know, that division without uh, causing the craziness that we see in our society today? I, I i i really like the mention of
2: art in that conversation and you might think that that's such a just well, like art's a been footnote so out with garbage these days right so. right exactly but everything all that is good and, and i remember uh Talking with uh, Maria Canice, of course. Uh, prepare for persecution, the author. Um, you know, it, it, the just the ruination of everything good. Taking a beautiful symphony and making into this, uh, or, or you know how we went from beautiful symphonies to mm-hmm.
1: to this Paul, garbage. Paul Joseph Watson did a video yeah. on how terrible modern art is and how oh yeah, yeah everything now is considered art you know if you say it's art then then so it's you, art from, from cardboard boxes a, to a 46 million art. dollar painting of just paintbrush yeah. swirls it's a great video and you can find that on his youtube channel paul joseph watson when we come back pastor david langford will be our guest he joins us each and every wednesday in the third hour so don't go anywhere we'll be right back with pastor david langford Wednesday edition of the Hagman Report. Pastor David Langford is our guest. He's going to be joining us in just a few moments. just wanted to bring your attention to one article that was up on Drudge that I mentioned at the beginning of the show but didn't really get into. Anti-Trump media, White House Christmas decor, spooky, like seen from The Shining. There's an article on Drudge that links back to PJ Media that details um, reports from the Washington Post-Post. Uh, huffington post the magazine ellie and a few other magazines and some of their descriptions of the trump white house christmas decorations are just uh, anything from saying oh it's a it's a very very they're very very white decorations implying that you know there's some racist undertone to the decorations to saying that this is scenes of an uh, of an apocalyptic future of america and uh, it's just unbelievable. You know, we had eight years of Obama in the White House putting up ornaments of Mao tongue and, you know, other murderous revolutionaries, and not one peep from the media, but here we have, you know, Trump putting Christmas back in the White House and Melina decorating and the media taking him to task. Obviously, they do it with everything he does, but to call the, the decoration spooky, nightmarish, spine-chilling, I mean... And too white. Don't forget uh, that, yeah, as you very, said, too white, very, very you know.
2: white. It's yeah. just, it's unbelievable. Agenda-driven uh, you know, on the on the on the part of the, those taking uh, issue with that. I, I certainly believe that to be the case.
1: Yeah, Vogue magazine. The decor is very, very white. Is she trying to tell yeah. us something? Some of the decorations brought to life an apocalyptic, barren landscape similar to some of us what some of us might imagine lies in America's future. Can, can you can you imagine <laughs>
2: criticizing uh, the Obama? Uh, regime for doing anything like that it, it just, It's just—it's crazy. Uh, but Pastor David Langford is here. Don't want to take in a minute more of his time, Pastor Langford, the voice of evangelism. dot com—that's his website. So glad that uh, he's here to give us give us a spiritual B twelve shot, a much needed spiritual B twelve shot. Always welcome and always a pleasure, Pastor. Thanks for joining us.
0: How are my dear brothers tonight?
2: Very well, thank you. And you?
0: But very well. Uh, let me say, I love white. Uh, these these morons that are castigating Trump do not realize that when Jesus returns in Revelation nineteen eleven, he comes riding a great white stallion, and the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Isn't white always clean and beautiful?
1: Yes. But see. It's
0: amazing is How but, they hate cleanliness, holiness,
1: righteousness. Exactly. And that's what I was just going to ask you. How much of this, uh, disdain for, for the, the Christmas decorations is spiritual in nature versus just hating Trump?
0: Boy, well, it just shows you how dark their hearts are. I'm, I'm sitting back, uh, and enjoying the exposure of the politicians, Hollywood, their sexual escapades, the moral high ground that they have purported throughout all of these years. And I'm just sitting back enjoying God pulling back the cover and saying, hey, I'm going to show the world just how filthy, how vile, how immoral, how degraded, how debased you people truly are when you feign such righteousness, but it's nothing more than self-righteousness. And we must remind ourselves, uh, Psalms 37, one, fret not thyself self because of the evildoers. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. So, you know, we, we shouldn't, we, our nature is to get aggravated and to get incensed, become angry, upset, The Bible tells us fret not thyself because of the evildoers and it's hard to uh, to watch them seemingly get by and you know this is really just the beginning Uh, this is going to continue on it would I wouldn't I would be afraid to say uh, for another six months to a year uh, the continual leaking and, and and what God is doing is countering this attack on Trump see now I know he put out his tweets today, and it got on the the news and stuff. But the focus is turning away from him to the sordid debasement. I and here's what here's what, here's what I really like. You had all these Republicans castigating Roy Moore, demanding that he he withdraw. You've not heard another word since all these other politicians have been exposed, like you know Conyers and Al Frankenstein. Um, it's amazing that nobody now in, the, in either party is wanting to say anything. You know why? Because they all have skeletons in their closet and they're afraid. I would be surprised, even though Mitch McConnell is, is uh, not the most greatest specimen of a man. He's had polio, but I wouldn't be surprised if something leaks on him, because God is getting tired of this hypocrisy, and uh, that's why it pays to be humble. He resists the proud but he said he would give grace to the humble so if we can keep the right disposition in the midst of all of this and i don't i don't rejoice in it and ha ha glad you got caught i i rejoice in the fact of the the righteousness of god he executes righteousness in judgment and it's always just it's, it's never biased never opinionated it's just always pure justice the uh, Genesis 18:25 Abraham said shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right so it doesn't matter who it is what it is you know when god begins to adjudicate it's it's so fair it's unbelievable but the problem is sinners never think it's fair uh, they'll always say it's uh it's too harsh and then you have your liberal uh so-called Christianity today that preaches grace, 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 grace and never preaches against sin uh, but grace the Bible says teaches my heart to fear God Titus 2.11 for the grace of God that bring us salvation hath appeared unto all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world so grace teaches me to fear God because I'm I'm receiving something that I I should not receive. But God is so just. If I repent, I acknowledge my sin, he will give me that unmerited favor and will bless my life. I want to I want to talk about something totally different tonight. Okay. Because I'm number one I'm disturbed, number two I'm concerned about the ignorance and lack of understanding, I'm going to try to be very diplomatic tonight, of all of these professing Christians who are anti-Semitic, Jewish haters, Uh, any, any professing Christian that castigates Israel does not have the right relationship with God, and I know that's going to make some people mad, because I've gotten emails here in the last several weeks about certain people, I'll just leave it at that. are making very derogative statements toward Israel what people don't understand there would be no Christianity without Israel and I'll and I'll show you that scripturally here in just a few minutes but what people don't understand God gave us everything that we have through the Jewish people now before there was ever the mosaic law There was a covenant made with a particular man whose name originally was Abram. God changed his name to Abraham, and God, Elohim, Jehovah, made covenant with him. Now, Abraham had nothing to do with this covenant whatsoever. This covenant was solely on God's part because in Genesis chapter 15, God put Abraham to sleep. When you put somebody to sleep, they don't, for the most part, know what's happened. People go under surgery, they wake up, and they're thinking they're getting ready to start the surgery. The surgery is completely over with. Uh, if it's an appendectomy, it's totally done. You're, you're Now you're recovering. You have no idea what's transpired, showing that you had nothing to do with the surgery on your part. You didn't direct the doctor. You didn't say, I'm hurting here, et cetera. they done the diagnosis. They put you to sleep. You don't know anything after that. That's what God did to Abraham. God did the same thing to Adam when he put Adam to sleep, and he took a rib, and he brought forth this woman called Eve. But I want to kind of go through the Genesis, and I use that as the beginning, not so much the book of Genesis, but how this all began, Uh, Genesis 12 and 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Thou will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed." Now let's, let's just stop right there for a minute. Where is the nation of Israel today? they're over there in the Middle East God gave Abraham a portion of land you'll find that in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18 where he said in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river the river Euphrates so from the Nile River over to the river Euphrates is the land that God promised Abraham which Israel as a nation never fully conquered. Now I may get it finished before the end of the year. It will probably end up being the first of the year but I'm doing a three hour DVD series to demonstrate and to show without a doubt how we need to be careful when we say or do anything against Israel. Now I know there will be those out there who say well the people over there that's over there. That's not the true Israel of God. Uh, you have any proof of that? I know there's been a lot of books written, but just like the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples were going to go out into the field, they were going to uproot the tares, and Jesus said, No, you leave them alone. Lest while you're rooting up the tare, you, re- you root up wheat, which is the redeemed. He said, The angels will do this when I return. Because this is the judgment of God, not the judgment of men. So men are not qualified to make that judgment. Though somehow, in their ignorance, and I'm going to go ahead and use the word stupidity, they think they're qualified to make that judgment. I'll show you scripturally here in a little bit how that what is over there could be the Jews and the seed of Abraham. Or they are still the seed of Abraham, but they're not the promised seed. They're the seed of Ishmael, which is not the promised seed that God promised Abraham. That would be the fleshly. So you have what we would call a secular Jew, and we have the true bloodline of those who come from the loins of Abraham, even though Ishmael also came from the loins of Abraham. But it was not the promised seed. That's why it's Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It was never Ishmael. He's nowhere in there. Jesus said, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of of, of, uh, Isaac. And we, we preach that to this day. I preach that God that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't preach about another God, because that is the only true God. And so we, 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 we jump to Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. This covenant, this seed, is going to be everlasting. Now, when I wrote the book, uh, new, the New Jerusalem Bride, the mystery of the church, I, I show how that God is going to join both the Gentiles and the Jews together in New Jerusalem. And only God could do something of this magnitude. It will be on the the gates. The 12 gates will have engraved the 12 tribes of Israel. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. So on the 12 gates of New Jerusalem, you're going to have engraved the names of the tribes of Israel. And then, on the foundations, Revelation 21, verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is showing to us that God is going to join the Jewish entity, and the gentile entity before this event takes place joined to the body of christ that's what the church is the church is the body of christ now i, I know people you'll know, say the church is the bride the church is feminine That that's all garbage baloney hogwash you'll find no bible verses that ever refer to the church as a bride as a virgin or as a female the church is the body of christ emphatically and so the Jews are not, we're not being, the Gentiles are not be joined to a Jewish body, and the Jews are not be joined to a Gentile body. Jews and Gentiles are being joined to Christ's body, which is God's body. I hear people say, Jesus was a Jew. No, he wasn't. Jesus was God. Now, he came through the seed of the Jewish people, but how was he conceived? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. I shared with you a couple weeks ago about eggs. You can take all the eggs you want, put them in an incubator, and if a rooster has not planted seed in those eggs, they will rot. They will will be a stinking mess in 21 days. They will not incubate and produce baby chicks. The seed must be there. And this is why when you read the Bible, you must always look at the word seed. We talk about God's seed, we talk about the serpent's seed, Satan's seed. Uh, the Jews in uh, John chapter 8 they said we're Abraham's seed Jesus said I know you're Abraham's seed but you're not the seed of the promised seed, you're of your father the devil, Jesus understood there were two entities and that other entity was Ishmaelites it, it was not the ever the the, the, the the that was not the promised seed that would be the flesh what I would call a, a secular Jew so we see in Genesis seventeen seven, God makes this covenant And he said, in their generations for an everlasting covenant. So the covenant is eternal. It's it's not something that's one and done. Then we go to Psalms 89. This will really make some people mad. But the whole chapter of Psalms 89 is what we deem the Davidic Covenant. The covenant that God made with David. You'll find that in its entirety in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God comes to David and lays this whole thing out. Then he says in Psalms eighty nine thirty four he said, My covenant will I not break, the all of things that have gone forth from my lips. So God is establishing this covenant with Abraham, and so Christ would come through the loins of Abraham and through David, because Jesus was a king. And so most thought originally he would come through the Levitical tribe, but it didn't happen that way. Uh, God switched. He said, now it's going to come from the tribe of Judah, because my son is king of kings and lord of lords. And if you'll go back and read the prophecy that Israel slash Jacob gave in the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, you will see as as Jacob is prophesying to all 12 sons. And then when he gets to verse 8, in Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Judah's called the, the tribe of praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Jesus has always had his hand in the neck of the enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's wealth. Well, when uh, John the Revelator was weeping in Revelation chapter 5, Because he found no man worthy to open the sealed book, then stood one of the line of the tribe of Judah. So before this Mosaic covenant and all of this stuff came to pass, this was already being prophesied 400 years before any of that stuff under the auspices of Moses ever came to pass. Judah is a lion's whelp, From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall ruse him up? The scepter. Shall not depart from Judah, who bears scepters only kings, nor a lawgiver. See, the law was given by Moses, but Judah would not be a lawgiver because Jesus would come through Judah. Uh, Jesus Himself said in John one seventeen, He said the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I said Jesus, uh, John, uh, in John chapter one verse seventeen. So He's not a lawgiver. So, nor a lawgiver from between his feet; it would not be birth out of the out of the loins of the lawgiver, but out of the, out of the tribe of Judah, uh, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. When Jesus comes, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall be raised. and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is what. Uh, Jacob is prophesying to his sons before he dies. He specifically is addressing this entire prophecy uh, to Judah, binding his foal under the vine and his ass's colt under the choice vine. Jesus came riding what? An ass's colt. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. That's that's Revelation nineteen eleven. He will tread the winepress the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He hath on his vestment and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, all of this was there uh, it prophesied so far before anything to do with Moses. And this is where people get confused. They they they, they 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 can't put the two together because they they keep being dogmatic about the law. That's that was the whole reason. Uh, that Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Uh, they kept trying to go back under the auspices of the law, and, and Paul tells them, this is not how you're going to be saved. Salvation is through faith and grace and what Jesus did on the cross. But they, they just, whatever reason, they could not seemingly get that through their mind. Now let's talk about a city, Jerusalem. Um, I believe, now this is my personal opinion here, and and I can be challenged without a doubt, but I believe the first mention of Jerusalem is actually in Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 with Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14 verse 18 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. That was your first communion service, That God gave unto Abraham says he was the king of Salem well how do you spell Jerusalem J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M Salem Jerusalem I believe that is the first actual recorded mentioning of Jerusalem there's no city like the city of Jerusalem a city that's been battered and torn, and 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 had so many wars and battles, it's it's beyond one's ability to comprehend. But what makes Jerusalem so significant? Why I, he, these people out there? They hate Jews, they hate Jerusalem, they they hate everything about it. Of all the cities in the earth, where did God put His name on what city? Jerusalem. You'll find that in Second Chronicles ch- chapter 6, verse 6, But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. When God changed Jacob's name to Israel, that was the beginning of the nation. And thus, out of his loins came Jacob's loins, came the Twelve Tribes, which constituted the Twelve Tribes of Israel. And so God says, that's where I'm going to put my name. Now, I, I find it, it's elating, it's joyful, but it's also going to bring great consternation in the earth. If Donald Trump moves the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, get ready for war in the Middle East. This, this, this has been going on probably for, I don't know, 30 or nearly 40 years, the debate about moving the embassy to Jerusalem. What is significant about that? It's going to say to the world, we recognize Israel's capital to be Jerusalem. That's why no other president has dared move it from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Because that's going to be a, 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 a declaration from America. We recognize Israel's capital is Jerusalem. And David, in his prayer of spiritual cleansing in Psalms 51, he's repenting of his sins with Bathsheba, asking for forgiveness. He's asking for the blood guiltiness of shedding the blood of Uriah. But he says in verse 18, Do good in thy pleasure unto Zion, built out the walls of Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem, when you read that in the Bible, they are synonymous. They are the same. There's no there's no difference in the two. When you see Zion, that's Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem, that is Zion. We're told as Christians in uh, Psalms 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's no other city in the world that I'm aware of, that God tells us to pray for, is the city. We're commanded to pray for the city of Jerusalem, that there may be peace. And he says, in doing so, you will prosper. I, I, I want to prosper under God's hand, and, and it's and it's an obedient thing to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, because that's going to, in the end time, be such a worn a war-torn city. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil, this is talking about Jerusalem, and thy spoil, and Jerusalem, shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Why is God going to gather all the nations of the world to the valley of Megiddo, And the ultimate warfare is about Jerusalem, because that's where His name is. When Jesus comes, He's not coming back to L.A., San Francisco, Paris, France, um, Tokyo, Akita, Japan. He's he's not coming anywhere but to Jerusalem. You know, that's what I I, I kind of snigger and I laugh at these so-called preachers, so-called whatever they declare themselves to be um, that. Don't they know where Jesus is coming? He's coming to Jerusalem. Why would he bother to come to Jerusalem of all places? Because that's where he established and made covenant with a man. Because there was no covenant ever made like that prior to Abraham, neither after Abraham. And and and, and Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie neither the son of man that he should repent hath he said shall he not do it hath he spoken shall he not make it good and, and so this is this is, this is the, the hand of God and then we go down in Zechariah 14 verse 4 and his feet Jesus feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall cleave or shall rip open in the midst thereof, toward the east, and toward the west. We hear this terminology, he'll put his feet down up the Mount of Olives. This is where Christ is going to return. That was his public discourse, uh, 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 Matthew 24, and then he led them out as far as Bethany, and Acts 1, and ascended back to the heaven, and said he would come back in like manner. Then let's drop down to Zechariah fourteen eleven, and men shall dwell in it. And there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. God's going to fight every person, every country, every nation that's ever fought against Jerusalem. Now, you you got to start asking yourself, then what is significant about Israel and Jerusalem? This is where God has put his name. You know, I've been to Israel, and I'm sure many listening tonight have been to Israel. You ever wonder why they call it the Holy Land? You ever ask yourself, why is Israel, Jerusalem, Galilee, why is that called the Holy Land? Because the most holy of holies walked that land called Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, people can get blinded by... Here's one of the greatest problems in Christianity. You're reading secular books by men, number one, they're not born again. You're reading books by men that have not the spirit of God, and their vile, corrupt, evil spirit gets into your spirit, and in indoctrination, you become corrupt. Personally, I don't want to read those books. You know why? They gender doubt. They produce strife. They're full of contention because they're of their father, the devil, and they write this because they're opposing what God has already ordained. If if, if you could just get your mind around this one thought, when Jesus comes, where's he coming to? He's coming to Israel. He's coming to Jerusalem. His throne will be established in Jerusalem. Did you know that's where the, the Antichrist is going to set up his offices right there in Jerusalem. He may have the United States Embassy, I don't know, but this is where the Antichrist is coming. Why, of all the cities in the world, why, if, you know, you'd think he'd probably come to Washington D.C. since we're the most vile, wicked the, the city in the world. That's not where the devil is coming to set up his, his palace. His palace is going to be set up In Jerusalem, Daniel chapter 11, verse 44 and 45, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. The Antichrist will not rule the whole world. Any any pre-tribber that will tell you that is lying, because if he's got control of the whole world, how can tidings out of the east and tidings out of the north trouble him? If I've got control of something, I'm certainly not troubled by it. You know, if I got a a, a a rabbit in my hands that I've taken out of a rabbit box, I'm not troubled. He's the one that's troubled. He's the one that has fear and afraid, but I've got him in my in my hands. I have control of his life. I'm not saying that to be distorted uh, or, or sorted tonight, but my point is, because he does not have world control, he's troubled, see, because he is a man. I know there are those who say, well, there's no literal antichrist. That's all baloney. That's all hogwash. There are so many Bible scriptures that authenticate this son of perdition. Judas Iscariot was called the son of perdition. Paul called the Antichrist the same thing, the son of perdition. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, he said, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. He's a man. He's coming to fruition. Let me go back to Daniel eleven forty four. 44. Trouble He'll be troubled. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many or to take away many, destroy many. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And yet, he shall come to his end and none shall help him. The Antichrist will come to his end in Jerusalem because that's where Jesus is coming. And Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 9 says he will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And uh, those of you that have my book, uh, Revelation chapter 13 revealed, I exegete the entirety of Revelation chapter 13 and I share about he's called the idol shepherd, the Antichrist, Zechariah chapter 11 verse 17 woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock the sword shall be on his arm and upon his right eye his arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened now if you'll dissect that verse which I have in that book that is a man that's had a stroke Revelation 13 says he receives a deadly wound and it is healed his deadly wound is healed When you look at someone that has had a terrible stroke, their right eye will go dim, black, blind, and they'll have like their left arm or their right arm, the extremity, it will dry up. And he says, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. That's what I believe happens to the Antichrist, just like Ariel Sharon. And there was somebody that prophesied Ariel Sharon would be healed. He did have a stroke and would come back and be the Antichrist but Ariel Sharon ultimately died let me say this tonight as well if you believe in the Antichrist which I believe there's going to be a literal Antichrist nobody knows who he is because it is a revelation second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 6 and 8 says that the man of sin will be revealed when something is revealed it's disclosed it's manifested God pulls off the veil uh, it's like the new car uh, that's going to be displayed at the at the car show and they pull the great white sheet off and now everybody can see uh, the contours, the design, the opulence, et cetera, et cetera. God's going to reveal this to the church the 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 world cannot receive revelation. you know this is this is why the church is going to be here. By the way, the whole entire book of Second Thessalonians is written to the church at Thessalonica. So you've got to understand that this is this revelation is for the church. Unsaved people are not going to get it unless God were to open their understanding and of course he God can do that. But we know the scriptures. So when we see the scriptures unfolding, the scriptures revealed, we can say that's what's taking place when when the holy spirit fell on the day of pentecost, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2. He said, this is that which was spoken of before by the prophet Joel. So he recognized what Joel had said was now coming to pass. When we begin to see these things come to pass, we'll be able to say the same identical things. So let's get back to the significance of Jerusalem in Zechariah 14. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 15. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 15. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and all the beasts there that shall be in these tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations, notice that, that is left of all nations. There will be a lot of death, but the redeemed don't have to worry about that because we're going to receive a glorified body. Which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. When Jesus comes and sets up the earthly kingdom, that will be the fulfillment of Revelation 21 verse 3, where John said, And God himself shall tabernacle with men. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last feast that the Jews celebrate in their calendar year. The feast before that is called the Feast of Trumpets. That's when the seventh trump sounds in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. And the last trumpet that Paul spoke of and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound, and we'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And so he's going to establish the Feast of Tabernacles. Then he says in verse 17, and we've obviously at this point in time, according to Zechariah, have entered into what would be deemed the millennial reign of Christ. Zechariah 14, verse 17, And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto the Jerusalem, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So God's going to punish countries, cities, and nations in the millennial reign of Christ that don't come to Jerusalem to worship him. Now again, men will still have their free moral agency in the millennial reign of Christ. They don't, they don't have to obey. That, that he, 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 God's going to give them their free will even during that time, those who have entered into the millennial reign have come through what we call the Great Tribulation. Verse 18, and if, that, and if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no this there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles." And that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seat therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So we see that God, when He when He when He comes and He sets up His kingdom, holiness is going to be the 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 word of the day per se. Everyone is going to see that they're going to be a part of that. And then tonight, I want to share one two other significant points. I can't get all this in in this short of time, but I want you to get the gist, the understanding of the significance. Where did we get the word of God? I I, I laughed at someone the other night who held up their Bible and they said we preach the Word of God and I laughed because that person that held up the Bible is holding nothing but a Jewish book in his hands not one Gentile gave us one book and the Bible there are 39 Old Testament books there are 27 New Testament books we thus have 66 books in the Bible not one book was ever written by one Gentile and yet people have the audacity to castigate, to impinge to mock, to ridicule, to criticize Israel ma'am, sir, don't you realize when you hold that Bible, where you got that Bible you got that Bible from Jewish people Now think about it, yet you have the audacity to say emphatically, I preach the word of God, and out of your next breath, you're lambasting Israel. This is why they're called novices. Paul said, don't be a novice, lest you fall into the snare and the condemnation of the devil. Because you're a novice, and you have no idea what you're talking about. Let me share with you from Romans chapter 3. Oh, by the way, Doug, I, I got so... Lambasted last week because you introduced me as Pastor Langford. Can you believe that? I'm
2: I'm I'm sorry about that, Pastor.
0: <laughs> I was I They 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 used Matthew twenty three eight where Jesus said, call, "Call no man master." I didn't hear you call me master. You called me pastor. But this guy, he 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 claimed witchcraft and demons were affecting him, so he attacked me and you both, and was upset that you would introduce me. Well, that's that's what I am. Jer, uh, Jeremiah three fifteen says, "I will give them pastors according to my heart, who shall feed them with knowledge and understanding." And then in Ephesians four eleven says, "And he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers." That's what God gave me that gift to be a, 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 a minister, and I have pastors and I have evangelized. So, but the, the, but this shows you the novel the novelty and the shallowness of people's Christian walk and. Uh, I just thought that was funny, but let let me go to Romans 3, verses 1 through 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? This is a rhetorical statement Paul is saying to the Gentiles. Or what profit is there of circumcision? Because he's already told us in, in, in the second chapter of Romans that circumcision doesn't profit when it comes to salvation. But notice what he says in verse 2 here, Romans chapter 3, verse 2 much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God I want everyone to listen to that what advantage hath the Jew because God gave them the oracles of God every book that we read came from a Jewish perspective and person there's not one book that's ever been offered by a Gentile and yet people in their ignorance will just lamb, you know what, if I hated Israel and Jews that bad, I sure wouldn't hold up the Bible I wouldn't hold up the Bible and say I preach this book and out of the next breath say but that's a bunch of junk, that mess over in Israel obviously they don't understand Ezekiel chapter 37 God kept his promise, God kept his promise in Ezekiel 37, he says in verse 12, therefore prophesy, now Ezekiel's talking to the the dead bones, the dry parched bones in in this valley, and he's prophesying, let's start at verse 11, Ezekiel 37 verse 11, then he saith unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, behold they say our bones are dry and our hope is lost, we are all cut off from our parts, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open up your graves, cause you to come out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. What happened May the 14th, 1948? God brought a nation of people from every corner of the earth. He brought them lifted out of the graves in the nations, the countries where they were dying, and gave them that little sliver of land. And he says in verse 13, Ezekiel thirty-seven thirteen, And ye shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. That is a miracle. It is a miracle that the Jews had no country, no city. They had nothing. And May the 14th, 1948, the Balfour agreement, they raised the flag of David, Harry Truman sent a telegraph, and recognized Israel as a state. And, you know, here they live, and there's nothing but Muslims over there, and yet they, they exist. Israel has one of the greatest technological industries in the world at this time. And and I've been over there, and and I know people will discount what I'm about to share, and that's perfect. Personal spiritual experiences are not subject to other people's thoughts, whether it's right or wrong. You can say it is, but I know what happened to me. But I remember at the Western Wall, and some of you may not be aware of this, but if you're looking at the television picture, and you see all these Jewish people with their little kippahs on their heads, skull caps they call them, and they're bobbing their head. That's called dovening. They're dovening, And they're bobbing their heads. But if you look over to your left, sometimes you're able to see an arched opening. It's an arched opening. And in there are just a bunch of Jewish rabbis from every descendant of Israel. And I was fortunate. A, a Jewish uh, priest, whatever you want to call him, he looked at me and he, he said, come here. And I, I walked over to him. He said, where are you from? I said, the United States. He said, what state? I said, North Carolina. He said, let me bring you in here. And, of course, he took me, and I was able to go through that place. And there were there were rabbis in there. People were in wheelchairs. They were laying hands on them. They were quoting Exodus 15, 26. I'm the Lord God that healeth." thee. They're doing it all from an Old Testament dispensation. But I was afforded the opportunity to walk through there, See some of the scrolls, and he opened up the, the the scroll of the of the book of Psalms, and began to show it to me. And he, he would tell I couldn't is in Hebrew I couldn't read. It. He would tell me chapter and verse, and I would tell him what I could tell him what it said, you know, uh, from the King James version. And so he, so he prayed with me, and uh, and he blessed me, and and I remember walking out, and I'm standing there by myself, and I'm I'm kind of mesmerized at the whole. Scenario, you know, everything I had been seeing while I was there, and and I just stopped and I prayed. I said, "God, you need to help me. Why do I have an affinity? Why do I feel an attachment to these people?" Now I didn't feel that toward all of them, but there were those like that man. Why he, you know, pointed me out of all uh, uh, you know American people that pointed me out and said, "Come here." And brought me over there and give me this personal tour, and I said, "God, why do I feel this connection? Why, why do I feel this closeness in my spirit?" And I must admit, uh, the places I have traveled, I have never felt more at home or, or more comfortable than than I felt while I was in Israel. It was, it was of course, it's a, it's a unique place in its entirety. But I said, "God, what, what's going on here?" And the Lord spoke to my heart. He said. What they don't understand is you both have the same Father. They just don't accept Jesus as my Son. You've accepted Him as my Son, but they've not come to that knowledge yet. But they, you both believe that I'm the Father. And, and that, that revelation just, just kind of gave me such peace in my mind because they, they believe in the, the Father. You know, they're still looking for the Son, but the Son's already come. See, Romans eleven twenty five says blindness in part has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. You know God has allowed this to happen so that you and I can come in. God has brought us in. I want to, I want to share real quickly uh, the, the greatness of the nation of Israel. Uh, uh, Moses is, is is lauding he he's, he's extolling Israel because he understood that God's covenant was made with Abraham. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? Question mark. And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this day which I set before you this day. Now you think about that. How accurate, just in Bible prophecy alone, but how pure and true are the judgments of God in, in adjudicating law. We call it the Judeo-Christian values. Most of our, our laws uh, came out of the Old Testament. When, when our, our justices and Congress and Senate, they begin to make law in the land. That was the platform. Because Moses says, What 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 a great nation. There's no nation like us. Why is there no nation like us? Moses said. Because God made covenant with a man called Abraham. And and here's 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 the, the, the clincher, here's here's the kicker that, that everybody grapples with, and they this here's what they've got to get the revelation and understanding. Romans chapter nine, verses four and five says this. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Who are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Who's he talking about here? He tells us the Israelites. That, that, that the covenants, the glory of God, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, and then he said concerning the flesh, Christ came. Christ came through the seed of the Israelites. Now here's, here, here's where people, this is the revelation. This is the revelation of understanding what's going on is Romans chapter nine, verses six and seven and eight. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. They say they're Israel, but they are not the Israel of God. That's what you got to understand. Well, then who are these other ones? They're Ishmaelites. They're not the promised seed. Notice what he says in verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Paul is not arguing that some of the Jews are Abraham's seed, but they're the seed of Ishmael. They're not the seed of Abraham because the promise was made to Sarah and Abraham that they would have a child and his name would be called Isaac. And Isaac means laughter because Sarah laughed and said, shall me and my Lord have pleasure when he's a hundred years old and I'm 90? My God, what a miracle. He he, He had to restore Sarah's body, her muscles, her womb, her uterus her mammary gland. Yeah, he had to do so much to, to redesign, restore her body that she would have the physical strength to push a child out because there wasn't no epidurals and, and all this stuff back then. So here's a 90-year-old woman and God touches her by his mighty power and she can literally bring forth this child and because she laughed, God said his name's going to be called Isaac. Now verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. So the covenant and the promise was made to Sarah and Abraham. The promised seed was Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob Jacob's name in Genesis chapter 32 was changed to Israel and then Israel has the 12 sons and we have the 12 tribes and there it goes now God also blessed Ishmael but it was not the spiritual blessing and covenant that God made with Abraham when I get this DVD this is this is a real quick uh, synopsis of, of what I'm going to share because people need to understand this we're we're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and um i tell you one man i pray for i pray for donald trump but i pray for benjamin netanyahu that man has a touch of god on his life whether he knows it or not i watched a documentary on him the other night and that man has a touch of god on his life whether he recognizes it he reads the torah every day i don't i don't know his walk with god he he could, he could be of the seed of Ishmael, I, I'm not the judge of that, but I recognize something on that man's life. For he was just a young man. He came. He came to America. Uh, he went to MIT. He went back and joined the Israeli uh, forces. Uh, he's been shot. His brother Jonathan got killed. Uh, this man has has a touch of God on his life, just like Joseph. It, it's nothing that he did. It's something that God did. And he, I think now he has served four four terms as the Prime Minister, uh, ruling over the Knesset in Israel. So I encourage you to pray for, for Benjamin Netanyahu as well, and to think this man endured eight years of Obama, a Muslim, is beyond my ability to comprehend that he could have any semblance of peace, and, uh, you know, just, just any kind of, uh, 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 what's the word am i looking for here, that they could just be peaceful and, and talk and, and not have a war uh, but he was able to do it i believe that's because of the grace of god uh, that helped him I, I hope joe doug i hope tonight we shed just a small amount of light on this Absolutely. to help people last last verse i will quote this one verse john eight twenty two. jesus said salvation is of the jews that's 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 the that's the that's the cannon i just dropped the bomb i just dropped Make A lot of people mad. But that's how we got redeemed was through the Israelites.
1: Amen, Pastor Langford. And I know even some in our audience, um, you know, we, we've seen this issue debated in a number of different ways. And uh, I know we're at the end of the hour, so we won't get into that today. But we thank you so much for the the insight and uh, the teachings that you, you brought to us today. Much and needed. Is, and it is important. You know, we're seeing uh, the one thing that I saw in the news today, was about Mike Pence going to, I don't remember exactly what it was that he did, but he made a mention of Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. And it's led many in the Israeli media to come out and say they expect this soon. So it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. Imminent was the word used uh, in the article. Well,
0: maybe we'll we'll, uh, we'll have some discussion between the three of us next week and just look at this a a little deeper.
2: Sure. Indeed, yeah, yeah. But but I think I think the message today re- it really was much needed, and, and I think a lot of people are um, have been misled, misguided by the uh, e- even the semantics within the conversation elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So this is good. The, the, wow, thank you very much. And I think it his word is off.
0: always good, Doug.
2: That's right. That's right. Amen. Pastor.
0: Well, everyone, have a wonderful evening and a, a good week. What's left, and I'll see you guys this time next week, Lord willing.
2: All right. God bless you, Pastor Langford.
0: And thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. All right. Have a good night. Bye bye.
2: Good night, sir. All right. That was Pastor David Langford, and, and indeed, Pastor. And I saw that comment too. Um, there, in fact, uh, I don't know if you got an email, but I saw the comment on the on the channel. And in, you know, it's um, uh, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. It, it's it's just an amazing thing we we see the divisiveness among christians and we see christians
1: sowing divisiveness
2: and if, if there's ever a time
1: though to be united under the banner of of being a christian and christianity right. and forget all the denominational and uh, other divisions uh, um, that we see whether it's you know understanding of scripture is different you know the rapture versus pretrib versus posttrib rapture We see that everything is is coming against Christianity and Christians. I got to say this. There's no room for that division.
2: Well, one of the things, and I've said this off air many times to uh, people like Pastor Langford and Steve Quill the the most vile, vicious, and hate filled rants and complaints I've ever gotten were from self professed Christians. And, And I'm serious when I say that. I'm a Christian, but, and then. You know, like a staccato of machine gun fire of hate-filled rants, and and that tells me all I need to know about that individual. And and there are some, there are some self-proclaimed Christian uh, bloggers out there that have got so, you know. It, look, I'm not getting into it, but the bottom line is this: uh, I I think we we've got to stick together. We've got to really keep keep going forward, look forward, and and uh, we have to take care of one another. We we have to look out for one another. That's my view. We have to uplift one another. And if you don't do that, if you're constantly ripping other people down, what the hell is your life all about? Is it that empty? Just my two cents. But on a lighter note, I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for your belief and trust in us, and thank you for supporting us. Um, don't forget this Sunday, the video conference Patreon members. You go to Patreon uh our Patreon page and you can take a look at the different rewards and so this uh and we hope to get the form up and running by the end of the week. So with that, Joe, glad to have you back. Great to be back. All right. Till
1: tomorrow. God have bless. a great night.